Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. What's good, Internet? It's September 9th, and you are listening to the 506th Waypoint Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Zachney. I'm joined by Ricardo Contreras. Hi. Ricardo Contreras. <laughs> the startled Ricardo they know, Contreras. They know their name. What? Uh-huh. <laughs> I said hello. Did, did, did Discord cut me off? It was a long delay, is all I'm saying. <laughs> it was just a Ricardo Contreras and just like sort of a stare at I the think, camera. I think I was trying to come up with something witty on the spot and my brain mm. short circuited. I'm sorry about that. Ricardo, Ricardo, was, my, Ricardo my was thinking. Was, yeah. I, w- I went to, so what's, who's in the 506 battalion of. Well, remember that hey, bit from the 501st? <laughs> well, no. So the, the, the 506th. Regiment uh, is the 500. Yeah, so uh, Band of Brothers, that regiment, of 101st Airborne, 506 PIR, um, uh, easy company. I consider myself Captain Winters of Waypoint. Uh, you know, and and yeah, I what everyone's shaking their head. Do you, you want to elaborate on that? No, 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 no. Hey, Rob, do you want to elaborate on that? Oh, you know, just the. Just the stabilizing backbone of of the outfit, uh, mm. you know the the sort of mentor and and, and dare I say like uh, you know beloved uncle figure of <laughs> of the team. Uh, I, I think that's that's basically I think that's I think that's where I fit. Uh, you know, and that's that's really good because that's what always what I say about you. People ask me, Renata, what's your job like? And I say, well, every day I go in, and there's the there's there's. The classic beloved uncle of Waypoint, Rob Zachney, there to guide Good us into the night. Uncle Rob. <laughs> yep, gotta gotta lead gotta gotta lead this lead this uh, company into into a variety of campaigns with with diverse outcomes. Uh, <laughs> helping me on that journey, Patrick Klopek. Never saw the Pacific. Band of Brothers, one of my all time favorite shows. The buzz on Pacific was kind of mixed, and I just ne- then never got around to it. But I feel bad because I've heard it's actually better than some of the reception it got when it came out. The Pacific's interesting, is what I will say. Uh, I think it has some of the highest highs. Like there's po- there's points where it's like thin red line, la- like levels of bleakness and existential horror about like a campaign that has no coherence. Uh, just like combat without context and violence without meaning there's times where it's like really good on that stuff but the problem is it's synthesizing like two or three different works and it, it, so it, it, it seemed like it like didn't have the characters line. like the whole reason band right. of brothers was so special was because the, like yes yeah, the scenarios whatever it was incredibly shot but like the characters were so i mean you're right i felt like you were watching like saving private ryan the tv show like had the same 
Uh, I mean, and obviously Spielberg was a producer on both, but have those been remastered in 4K? I feel like that's what would get me to finally watch. That's the a Pacific. great question. It feels like I, I, I don't think they have been. I know they got Blu-ray releases, but right. 4K that come out. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't look like it has happened because hmm. uh, so that would be my impetus to, to finally go and watch that was like okay if i am i going to watch a show to get to capture a little bit of that band of brothers magic maybe maybe at least in 4k so you know we'll, we'll try and uh will that into the world uh we're also joined of course by ren out of price ren are you also refreshing uh high def digest and <laughs> blu-ray.com to see if the pacific and band of brothers are coming out in 4k you know, I can't I can't say that that's what I've been that's that, that that's what I've been refreshing as of late. I don't I've been refreshing the anime merch site. That goes all the way back, right? That's like early DVD era, right? No. I guess it depends on how you define the DVD era, but it does feel like Band of Brothers was another one of those like Yes. Everyone got that steel that tin, case that tin, box that tin, set. That tin yeah, box oh, yeah. set. Yes. For sure. Yes. yes. For sure. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I feel like for, for some reason that I think as they came out the same year, uh, the fellowship of the ring, I feel like came out that same fall as band of brothers. And both of those were like instant purchases for, uh, DVD, like the, in, in subsequent years. Um, and I don't think I ever got band of brothers on, on Blu-ray. I did. I have not uh, rewatched it, but I, I do. I did like get, I upgraded my DVD set just because I, not because I had any intention of rewatching it, but it is like just but, but one of my all time favorite watches is Band of Brothers. I was like, eh, you know, it was one of those things where it was like on a flash sale, and it was like, do you want oh, this yeah. for twenty five bucks? It's like, yeah, okay, sure, fine. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, ha- I, I watched it so much like in college that I haven't felt the need to because it was like one of those things that people just had on all the time. Yeah. Let's watch that. Let's let's cry over <laughs> like the end of Band of Brothers with the guys like all saying goodbye to each other. Uh, let's get, let's get real fucked up, uh, over, um, like the one where, uh, Neil McDonough's character, uh, sees like Bill Garnier get hit by a shell mm-hmm. and just has his final like breaking point mm-hmm. in the episode, helpfully titled breaking points. <laughs> oh, you think that it's good that they made it clear to everybody. Wow. This is also, yes, and let me tell you, there's another episode called Crossroads, and let me tell you where, (laughs) let me tell you where the combat of that episode occurs, Mm. and where the characters find themselves (laughs) metaphorically in that episode. Powerful. What a fucking show, though. Here's the problem. All that stuff, like, that's cool. I know, as hell. I know, and I'm like, matter. it's amazing. That's, oh, uh, shit. The, the epic melodrama. It rules. Exactly. And melodrama fucking whips. It's so good. It's so good and fun when well executed. Mm-hmm. The, uh, yeah, I guess we're coming off a long weekend here, and I, I'm hoping we all found time to get on our bullshit. One thing I did, mm-hmm. this, like, to this point, uh, one thing I did this weekend, uh, in addition to watching Prometheus, uh, which I felt like ended the vacation prematurely. I was like, time <laughs> to watch Prometheus. <laughs> Getting the Sunday scaries. Time to watch Prometheus. God. But uh, another thing that uh, I started to do for a side project, but I had to, had to watch Saving Private Ryan, uh, which I've not seen in like mm-hmm. at least 10, 15 years, in part because like that's a movie that's just one of those things where I feel like there's a hurdle you got to get over. You got to really like summon the am i am am i in the same private ryan headspace uh <laughs> like am i in the headspace to see the Elma beach scene yeah, we get, you and- have to get over <laughs> such a visceral introduction I- <laughs> yeah 
uh, or like the medic bleeding out while everyone's like trying to save him. Like there's a lot of stuff. The man here. looking like, for his legs on the beach. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, Ren finds this funny. Oh, this is amusing to Ren. Ren likes it. Ren likes it when the troops run into a prepared position uh, that's pre-sided by German artillery. And they think, all get fucked up. I think it's good, actually. <coughs> actually. <laughs> Ren's, Ren, Ren's sad when okay. the Germans are driven off that beach. I, I am. I didn't say that. She's like, no, the machine gun nest was doing so good. <laughs> their, their kill streak was epic. KDR. I mean, listen, yeah. To be fair, they did have a really good KD. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like, like the people on those beach emplacements were doing well. Yeah, Spielberg knew this. <laughs> Number went up. It's, it's weird. The director's cut uh, actually does have like a kill counter uh, <laughs> running in the running in the lower left. Um, Jesus. <laughs> when, and the then Germans the- unlock an airstrike, but then uh, Eisenhower cancels it. It's 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 weird. I think uh, that the oddest part of that movie for me uh, is when Private Ryan is saved at the very end, and he's the last one standing. And then he goes, "Number one victory royale, yeah, Fortnite. <laughs> we're about to get down, get down. Ten kills on the board right now." And then he looks around him, and he looks at the counter in the bottom right, uh, and the, the director's cut, and he goes, "Oh wait, fuck. It was actually forty-three." And then the movie ends. Damn. I mean, the, uh, Spielberg did put those. He did take those rate. You know, he took those guns out of ET. So. You know, he could do anything. True. Coward. I know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I grew up and I'm sad now. I'm a parent. Fuck off, Spielberg. Bro. <laughs> Bro. Wouldn't, wouldn't want people to think cops carry guns uh, <laughs> needlessly and threateningly uh, uh, in this in this great nation of ours. God. Uh, but, yeah. So, I ended, up, I ended up watching that. And, uh, you know, that's sort of the, the, the precursor to uh, Band of Brothers. But it was, it was one of those things where... I was talking about this the other the other day on Twitter. It's like I went through this with Jaws, which is a movie I watched for the first time in ages at the start of the pandemic, because that was kind of the metaphor for a situation a lot of us were in. And I do feel like Spielberg's one of those guys where he's such a popular artist that's easy to forget how solidly constructed these works yeah, are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because they just become like tropey, right? And it's like, uh, eh, you know, like it gets you know, I everyone knows the scenes that get referenced. Uh they 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 know the highlights, but they also know the movies that kind of come along and, and rip the stuff off later. They know the lesser imitators. But then you actually like watch a Spielberg work in context, see the whole thing, you're like, wow, it is a really fine line this dude consistently walks between being like suspenseful scary like like touching and also uh you know kind of kind of bleak uh and it's it's a it's a real it's a real juggling act uh he pulls off with a lot of these films and and same private ryan was one i'd forgotten just how much more complicated that movie is in a lot of ways than what i remember which was basically a stephen ambrose like rah rah we love the troops movie I mean, like, I think that it's very easy with, like, high spectacle films to, I think people have a tendency to uh, mistake subtlety for depth uh, and and kind of treat, like, high spectacle films as inherently shallow. Uh, and I think that uh, a lot of that, like, ends up hitting, like, Spielberg, who does make a lot of high spectacle films. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. It, no, I think, that, I think that's true. And... And and I think to to be fair, like it's, it's one of those things where watching the movie, I was like, there there might actually be a little more subtlety here than than I remember. But it's in part because I think some of the messages of that film get got really lost, like on on release. 
because that movie just got sort of seamlessly woven into a lot of like greatest generation uh, retrospective stuff. And to be fair, he invites that with those fucking corny intro and outro sequences that bookend the film. Uh, but but like you actually watch the movie and so much more of it's about like, hey, this is like entirely a movie about like people being afraid of like losing their humanity uh, in in war. And we see like our heroes doing a lot of genuinely horrible stuff and, and really becoming hardened in some ugly ways. And that's just not how I remember that movie. Uh, you know, I remember it being a lot more like what these men went through for our freedom and <laughs> you watch the movie and it's a lot like, wow, these guys are all getting kind of weirdly sadistic uh, at this point. Like on the last time I saw that movie, I was so young. I, I mean, like, yeah. That, yeah. I mean, I saw that movie that was a event movie because, well, Spielberg made a, a war movie. Time to go see that in the theater. You like Jurassic Park, right? You know what I mean? Like he was he was he was doing that period yeah. where he was doing some pretty interesting swings between his spectacle work and, you know, I mean, Schindler's List is the same era. Like it's just yeah. he, he used his capital to do some really interesting things and like walked an incredibly fine line as a filmmaker that almost is interesting because I think you can see the tension between him wanting to be you see this in a lot of his work. Where he wants to be two different kinds of filmmaker and then gets kind of trapped under the blockbuster stuff, but yeah. he still does really cool stuff, even though he's making things meant for like a really wide tent of an audience. Off to, um, God, see me and pull it up right now, but, uh, Matthew wise, who's a, uh, I think professor at NYU and has written some stuff for us, uh, before I wrote a resident evil piece for us a while ago, but he, he sent me a piece uh it was a negative review from the time that was also uh sort of a joint review between this and a movie i had forgotten completely that it, that it existed uh small soldiers patrick does this ring a bell? <laughs> yes yes the, um um shit who's in that uh it's a, it's a kids movie it's by directed by joe dante um right who's responsible for gremlins uh Gremlins 2, uh, a bunch of other stuff that unfortunately it's not coming off the top of my head, but um, Interspace. Interspace, oh, Matinee. Yes. He did Matinee. Yeah. yeah. Okay. He, he, had a, he, had a, he had a fun run. And um, yeah, Small Soldiers is supposed to be, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know what this piece is about. It's essentially like, it's way more interesting than how it was marketed as like yeah, a, so, a kid's toy. Like, look at the, look, it's uh, got not Tom Hanks, but, it, you know, it had like a, a, a really named actor as its central uh you know, characters and actually there's more going on beneath the surface of small right. soldiers. This review is by Jonathan Rosenbaum and it's a, a pretty negative review of, uh, of saving private Ryan. But I guess I hadn't realized this, that like these were released, I guess in the same window. Mm. Uh, but I guess also Joe Dante was basically sponsored professionally by Spielberg. Yes. Uh, for a lot of his career. And one of the arguments here is that like, uh, if you look for a place where Spielberg's more critical conscience exists, uh, like apart from his work as a filmmaker, it's in sponsoring these movies that in so many ways are like kind of dark uh, reverses of like the Spielbergian works yeah. uh, that they're kind of responding to. And so Small Soldiers, yeah, was marketed as, oh, it's boy, these these toys are coming to life and they're getting up to all sorts of hijinks. And what gets lost in that is these toys are a metaphor for the United States military and their role in a violent, uh, like a violent and, uh, colonial, uh, like, um, like a American conception of itself and power, uh, and 
like they're actually like you know it's kind of borderline a horror movie right and they're they're there to hunt down this other set of toys uh and i'd completely forgotten that like that movie existed it was a really it was a really interesting lens through which to be saying private ryan uh was was through this work so uh the the title of the article is cutting heroes down to size uh, Small Soldiers and Saving Private Ryan, and it's by Jonathan Rosenbaum. Uh, it's a really interesting critical read, and also just a really interesting hmm. way of doing criticism. Like you, like the this. I feel like this is a format that existed largely because of newspapers and alt weeklies and like um, like magazines, where you would have in one layout multiple reviews. But sometimes you could play around with this idea of tying the two reviews together. Um, and this is a really excellent uh approach to that yeah i think it's a form that like has extremely fallen out of favor but occasionally gets used in video essays video essays do this specific structure a lot actually of the interweaving of of two particular like media objects like in conversation with one another i think it's a a really cool uh like formal trick you can do yeah it's i can see why it's fallen out you know it's it's, it's it doesn't make any sense right this is a this is a form that makes perfect sense to like the physical medium of like a newspaper or a magazine, but the minutes, everything, everything is a separate URL and can be sort of hived off like that. Uh, you, you see less utility for it. Uh, and it does require some real creativity to, to make these things fall into dialogue neatly like this. But anyway, so that was, that was my, that was my weekend except for, except for some games. Um, anyone else get, get really down a rabbit hole? Um, Patrick, you put your spooky boy up yet? Spooky boy's up. Um, I, I, I cannot, uh, it has been the emergence of Jackson bones in the, in the front yard has been like, actually like quite literally utterly heartwarming. Like we have people coming like from all over the neighborhood. Like Aww. I've been recognized twice as like, Hey, you're the, cause I'm always walking my dog. And like, are you, are you the one with the, the big skeleton? And I was like, yes. And it's like, Oh is it okay if my two boys come by later today and take a picture in front of it? I was like, yes. Like, yeah, of course. Um, it's just really neat. Like to have this like little, like it has brought a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of joy. Uh, and that is a cool thing. And I mean, part of that is because it's big and a spectacle. Another part is because it's September 7th. Um, and, and although the stores may be converting to Halloween, people's yards haven't, haven't quite done that. And so it's just, you know, kind of noteworthy to see on the front lawn, but it is like it has been worth every every bit of the three hundred dollars. It's been worth like we had this giant uh, soccer tournament down the street, and so the streets were just lined with people over Labor Day weekend. Like, just I mean, on both sides of the street, people going in and out, in and out. And so usually we try and get out of town specifically because of that weekend. It's just it makes just getting around the neighborhood a nightmare. But we just happened to be in town this weekend and. Like every night, like we'd be watching TV and you would just hear people giggling uh, next to, to Jackson Bones. And so it's been very, it's been very cool. I like I could not be happier. And in fact, all it's done is now started to pick at my at an impulse to, well, I mean, Jackson needs a family. Like, what else can I put out there? Um, <laughs> but I haven't I haven't quite. Figured. The problem is so many things, Halloween things that would equally match Jackson's spectacle are not meant for the outdoors. Uh, so many mm. things are meant for the, in, the, the indoors. Like there's a Costco does have this uh, like dueling banjo setup. It's these two uh, dorks that talk to each other and play music. And it's awesome. I've looked at it a bunch of times and it would be really hilarious to have that next to Do Jackson play dueling banjo. Yeah. 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 It's great. Um, and then have this, like these, you know, dumb one liners. They, they spit back and forth at each other. <laughs> But it's everyone loves the hijinks of deliverance. Mm -hmm. 
well, speaking of, yeah, speaking of cultural objects that like lose their meaning over time. Yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, uh, and, uh, but it's meant, it's meant for the indoors. Like it, it can't survive the, the rain, but yeah, that is a lot of is me is like slowly peeking my head over my couch. So I can see the cute things that are happening with the skeleton, but also not trying not to make anyone feel bad that I'm looking. So it's like, you know, as much as I want to see the the delightful family interactions, I also don't want people to feel like I'm scolding them for I need to like put up a sign that's like, I'm okay with you interacting this with is, this is what gets Patrick on the ring train. <laughs> oh no. Uh, I'm I'm so I'm so thrilled about the skeleton and the joy it has brought you in your life. Yes. Yes, me too. Um yeah, I uh, no, it was it was it, it was a good break, and I can like I don't know how it is uh, where you are, Patrick. Like I feel like this last weekend has been the very first like just taste a little bit of autumn in the air out here oh God, in the east, so, and it's, it's like it's like I'm so parched for fall, and so <laughs> like I'm like I like if you, like the minute you the, love your sweaters, t- have you already taken them out? Uh, I did the other day. I was like, <laughs> here we go. Here we go. It's uh, I could have seen that being a Labor Day project for Rob is finally the sweaters are out. You know, maybe you've got one or two for the couple of chilly days you get weirdly in August that like you can convince yeah, the yourself to put on. Sort of stay out yeah. just in case you need to throw on an extra layer. But uh yeah, this was the first uh actually no, actually the sweaters didn't come out. Uh what came out was the uh like really warm uh like sweatpants that I've got, the mm. ones that are like a slightly denser knit mm-hmm. and a little baggier so that you end up in that like little warm pocket around yourself. That's like perfect. Nice. Uh, and like, that's, that's, that's real good. Uh, especially in, in my apartment because it's not very well, uh, like temperature controlled. There are thermal layers. And so like down from like the mid thigh down to your feet, it's, considerably cooler down there than it is like <laughs> up where the rest of you is sure. uh and so you'll have days where it's like your your legs are cold and achy and also you're kind of like sweltering uh up by the collar Jesus. it's very it's very annoying but uh it does make it perfect for uh throwing on throwing on clothes like that um so you know let's let's get let's get caught up because we, we had a few days off uh and there was some some real news that unfolded over the over the last week really i feel like it crescendoed fast toward the end of last week and and into this weekend uh patrick you want you want to talk about like what has gone on and the current status of uh you know the right-wing hate site uh kiwi farms yeah so in the past couple of days uh cloudflare which essentially provides like ddos uh, support for websites was essentially you can try and bring down a site with fake traffic by having bots just overwhelm a website. It's a very common thing in earlier times in the internet where it was just very easy to bring down a lot of websites. And, you know, organizations like Cloudflare have been pretty important for like the f- stable foundation of the modern internet. Um, and so to that degree, Cloudflare has has done a lot of good in making websites just more reliable and less uh, targeted by you know, groups who can uh, easily use bots to take them down. But uh, they were also giving a lot of protect. They were giving protection for uh, websites like Kiwi Farms. And in the past, uh, Cloudflare has also been under uh, criticism for hosting 
uh, HN uh, or protecting rather HN and uh, the, the Daily Stormer uh, to uh, right wing hate sites so across a whole spectrum of hate. Uh, and uh, they were this sort of reached a crescendo with uh, a trans uh, streamer uh, on Twitch, uh, popularly goes by Keffels, uh, Clara Sorrenti. Uh, and Kevels, you know, I didn't, had not really heard of Kevels prior to, to this incident, but they kind of became popularized from my understanding by doing a very good job of dunking on conservatives, uh, and, uh, libertarian weirdos like Destiny, uh, who was also a very popular Twitch streamer who was like, uh, the debate me bro crowd. Ren, did you have something you wanted to say? Oh, uh, um, and Kevels was as many, uh, Trans people uh, have experienced through uh, Kiwi Farms uh, became a target. Kiwi Farms over the years, its its history dates back, you know, 10, 15 years, uh, is essentially a repository for doxing. Um, there are individual threads at this on this place that are meant to categorize personal information about individuals that has that the site has decided to target. Um, those those individuals are numerous. They include yours truly. Um, I only feel comfortable saying this because the site is at least down right now, but like have received things in the mail. My wife has been harassed. Normally I don't talk about these things because all you get when you talk about Kiwi farms is that they linger on you longer. And so well, as this campaign sort of unfold, that was one of the real through lines is that like, even within like journalistic outfits that cover, uh, you know, the, for lack of a better word, the hate beat, the extremism beat. Yeah. Uh, there's been a real reticence to stay on Kiwi farms in part because one, they appear to be bulletproof, like nothing ever knocked them offline. And two, uh, the like swarming reaction uh, from that forum to anyone who sort of uh, raised its profile to criticize it meant that like the risk and reward just in terms of like personal danger uh, you were exposing you yourself and your family to was not worth and that became like semi-official guidance to a lot of people working in this space uh was you know this is probably not worth getting into because the like uh reporting on it is probably not going to change anything but it will change your life yes and they and, and, so, and they, they, had a, yeah. they had a long history of not just targeting individuals but specifically targeting people close to those individuals in their surrounding social orbits uh family and friends because that was one of the more effective ways to apply silencing uh, pressure on, on people is to have your rhetoric comment, you know, uh, have have real world impacts on on the people in your lives. That's a that's a great way to get people to shut the fuck up. And I can I can I can attest to it. It is a it is a great way to not say anything about that site in the hopes that uh, they, they won't continue uh, poking well, around. Go ahead. And just to make like there's there's a term that. uh it comes up a, a, a lot around like right wing extremism, uh, but it's a really useful way of thinking about this stuff. Uh, this idea of like uh, stochastic terrorism, mm -hmm. uh, which is that not necessarily people are calling for direct action type stuff like I want to or you should like go and like do this horrible thing to this person, but just this idea of you create a repository for a lot of actionable data. And then you speak about it in terms that are inflammatory, but not necessarily directly like direct incitement. Mm -hmm. And then what do you know, like a bunch of horrible 
and dangerous things happen around that rhetoric. But you can't say that like a place like this is a place where this kind of harassment is organized or incited. All people here are doing is giving you all the information you would need to carry out uh, like harassment campaigns or uh, violent attacks and then sort of proclaiming loudly how how much they wish things like this happened to these targets that, that they've identified and carefully created like encyclopedic knowledge of their lives and their connections. Uh, and that's always been sort of the, the, the fig we the fig leaf that a lot of like extremist communities hide behind. And also it was kind of a fig leaf that Cloudflare was certainly happy to hide behind for a long time. Most social right? networks, was, right? Is is it's is that speech? Yep. I don't know, but it's speech. Yeah, and without any, you know, regulatory agency, without any law enforcement agency, you know, following up on this, it, it leaves it leaves us in a place where people are then directing their interest. If you, if you believe these places shouldn't exist or should or should be taken down, is directing your attention towards what they call like the internet stack, the different different plays that allows that are sort of like the foundational parts of what make the the modern internet work. And what Kevels did was. The opposite of what most people do, what, the opposite of what I do, opposite, like pretty much anyone else that has like come in contact with Kiwi Farms is they said, no, I, no, I, I, I'm going to stare you in the eye and turn this into uh, the reverse. I, I am going to target you. We are going to take down your website. And that saying that is one thing. Lots of people have tried campaigns against Kiwi Farms. Like Keffels is not the first. Like this is it. it uh you know, thank God it proved more successful, but it, it, not the first person that has said we should take this website down. What was it kind of became this perfect storm. And I think part of this is because of the existence of things like Twitch, where you can very rapidly create communities that can then do, you know, in the same way that Kiwi Farms, you know, does uh, in, in a way trying to incite uh, death by suicide and 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 other sorts of uh, uh, potential actions is you can mobilize people very very quickly um using things like like twitch and so what keffels did was like organize hashtags and begin uh talking to news outlets and specifically started identifying what is allowing kiwi farms to exist and it turns out it was basically the fact that cloudflare was protecting them um and giving them all these uh different sort of like internet level service protection uh that it affords to lots of websites that deserve that protection. But this one is like, you know, essentially we don't have it. There's no internet cop. And so unfortunately, yes, maybe in an ideal world, you don't have this part of the internet stack being asked to make content moderation. I don't know that necessarily this isn't ideal, but at the end of the day, the only thing keeping Kiwi farms operational was this. And if you flipped it off, it doesn't turn key. It doesn't make Kiwi farms go away, but neither HN didn't go away. The Daily Stormer didn't go away, but they essentially are like banished to the deep, like the dark web. And you have to jump through enormous hoops in order to get to them. And that is essentially a form like the closest we can get to like true deplatforming on the modern Internet. And like Cloud Cloudflare essentially tried to like argue they shouldn't be in this position. Like they put out a blog post a week ago saying uh, actually when we took t- they kind of implied like actually when we did HN and Daily Storm, we're like, oh, I don't know, maybe that wasn't the right call. And which seemed to be setting up that they wouldn't take action on this. But uh, th- th- eventually they published a post that essentially said what you were talking about, Rob, where a lot of these communities, these hateful communities rely on suggestion and innuendo, but not direct action. Well, 
what Keffels did was essentially drive these people crazy and like when pinned into a corner and felt like they were finally the cornered animals, what they did was overreact and they started taking direct actions. They started writing down uh, that there were going to be bomb threats called in, you know, like they started doing the sorts of things that is normally the cover for these places. And that ended up being their undoing. It ended up being the, uh, the justification Cloudflare used for ultimately removing uh, their protections and essentially driving Kiwi Farms uh, offline. And then you have thing, actions in connection to that, which are the Internet Archive also took down the archives. They don't actually delete them. The Internet Archive still has, my understanding, is an archive, but it is now like a true archive where like you you need to have a justifiable reason to access this history of the Internet as opposed to just being able to pull it up. And, uh, you know, we didn't mention this up up at the top, but, you know, one of the reasons Kiwi Farms, other than just making people feel scared and, uh, you know, for ha- having their information out there, even if they, nothing ident- and nothing notable comes of it, just knowing that, like, your address is listed in somewhere and you can report it to Google and they'll do nothing about it. Uh, anyway, there have been three people over the course of Kiwi Farms' lifetime uh, in which part of what Kiwi Farms does is specifically target marginalized folks and specifically targets trans folks to try and drive them to take their lives. And uh, there have been three instances linked directly to Kiwi Farms. One, uh, which uh, I have a pretty close connection with, which is that last year I wrote a profile of Nier, who is a really famous uh, SNES uh, emulator programmer who prized doing accuracy over like all encompassing. Like like uh, Nier was very committed to really trying to recreate to like an incredible degree, like what was this hardware? How can we recreate it? And like, <clears throat> there are so many things about modern emulation that do not exist without Nier's work. And I, I did this piece about how uh, Nier was one of Nier's last projects was this, this uh, uh, SNES RPG from Square, uh, Bomb at Lagoon that never came out, was never localized outside of uh, uh, Japan. Uh, and as a result of that piece, like part of it was talking about the sort of unending harassment that Nier had experienced. They were very cautious to even discuss it with me because they knew that including it in an article, just as we've discussed, would mean that that would just be increased. It's just a, it's just a target on their back again. Um, and then not long after I wrote that piece, uh, Nier published a series of tweets um, that specifically called out Kiwi Farms as being responsible for... Uh, you know, essentially leading them to uh, take their own life. Uh, one of the tweets that, that Nier wrote back in uh, June of 2021, uh, Kiwi Farms has made the harassment orders of magnitude worse. It's escalated from attacking me for being autistic to attacking and doxing my friends and trying to suicide bait one another just to get a reaction. I lost one of my friends to this. I feel responsible. Um, please don't remember me for this. Remember me for what I've done for my work and dedication. Thank you all so much for your kindness and support over the years. Uh, I'm very sorry. Um, and this was an instance in which someone who then did take their life uh, specifically called out Kiwi Farms. And I, I had an instance during all of this where these tweets went out and then, I, you know, I was one of the last people to talk to near before this event occurred. And also in the middle of the night and frantically sending emails after these tweets went out to see if I could even could even reach them. So other friends could could get in touch and. You know, tragically, that did not occur. But, um, you know, there is a a solace I take in Keffel's work 
since then, uh, a vindication of, you know, sort of the plea that Nier put out there that there will be other places. Like, this is not like a, a victory that changes the internet, but, but just fuck that place and fuck those people. And it's incredibly satisfying to watch them crawl away into their new holes. And, uh, you know, I hope wherever Nier is, it brings them some peace because Kevils has done really good work that is going to save other people save lives and save just an enormous amount of hurt that was going to come one way or the other. Yeah. It's, um, <clears throat> it's kind of surprising. It's one of those things where again, Kiwi farms seemed effectively immortal, uh, as far as these facing these sorts of consequences, because I mean, baked into the assumptions of so many internet startups, but also internet services companies is sort of a really, hard-hearted uh libertarianism uh that it's the old utopian philosophy of the internet like you know and that has now run into practical realities of how terrible people can be right and and also i mean it's a very self-serving uh you know it's Mm -hmm. it's it's a principle that's very profitable to uphold uh and like a lot of principles that construct that cause like significant social harm uh after a certain point the harm itself becomes like a sort of perverse vindication of how how valuable the principle is. Look at all the the lives we're willing to throw on the pyre uh, for for the sake of these principles. But but Cloudflare had had like been pretty adamant for a long time they weren't going to uh, take any action, even as domain registrars were increasingly uh, getting getting leery of the company. Uh, and it is you know it it is kind of remarkable to see how this all unfolded uh but it's also kind of you know i I, tragically ironic in some ways that it was the site being the the most kiwi farms it could be reacting to this uh pressure in exactly the like in exactly the way uh that people like this would react being exactly who they are uh, that that finally you know forced even a company like Cloudflare to do the right thing and uh, take them offline, and I still I guess I'm still like I I still sort of certainly uh, the the person who's basically run Kiwi Farms for years Joshua Moon mm-hmm. uh, has sort of made statements that it doesn't seem likely that Kiwi Farms is going to be able to be brought back online, but I I I still kind of dread the possibility that like someone's willing uh to to invest in the infrastructure to specifically keep uh you know these types of extremist sites online um doesn't there, there, is, there yet, is but there is history like you know like uh i recommend th- there's an excellent uh sort of like internet culture newsletter called garbage day um that is one of my favorite reads every week and one of those recent ones about kiwi farms discussed like one of the earlier versions of a Kiwi Farms website was Encyclopedia Dramatica, which was uh, like essentially a wiki that uh, chronicled some sim- similar thing. It was maybe I, 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 would, I was around in that era, but not familiar with the website, but it essentially was like a prototype for what Kiwi Farms would become. And Dramatica was deplatformed in a similar sort of way where the only way the archives are being kept were like these torrents. And eventually pe- it gets old and people get bored and that site just doesn't exist anymore. And the archives have all, all disappeared. And so, you know, our best hope is that the same fate awaits Kiwi farms, but the problem, this doesn't solve fundamental, fundamental, like structural issues with how we deal with this extremist elements of the internet. There are 
it's not that I want the government to get into the necessarily like wading into the speech category, but like, I don't know what the good solution is. It is probably, you know, it is probably the internet stack just realizing that you are responsible for some of this. I don't, I don't know what the solutions are. Otherwise I don't expect, I, I'm not really confident law enforcement's going to suddenly catch up and be able to f- figure this stuff out. But it, it is unfortunately probably going to rely on campaigns to deplatform de- these places because I, I generally don't really see what the alternative is, even if that's like kind of upsetting and depressing because you would hope this opens the door to whatever would be a more tangible solution. But maybe the, the, the solution is like places like Cloudflare trying to hide behind these bullshit impartial statements when like they've been bullshit all along. Um, and so I think the, the faster that companies realize they are going to be held to account for that, uh, the faster that these places where they do spring up cannot become as longstanding as a, as a Kiwi farms. And it's still whack-a-mole, but that's just always going to be the case. Yeah. I mean, I, there was a report today, uh, you know, from David Gilbert over at vice news, uh, talking about that, uh, they're trying to find a basically an even more, uh, right wing version of Cloudflare uh, that's, that is willing to, try and keep kiwi farms online which i think is is kind of my dread uh which is that you know as as you see right-wing extremism getting increasingly like mainstreamed and organized you will see them sort of creating this kind of infrastructure that makes them that is pointedly uh immune to these these lines of of critique right uh, you know be, simply because they like having the, this type of content up they like having these sort of like pools to recruit from and they like seeing bad things happen uh, and I mean, New, Z- New Zealand, in response <clears throat> to um, the Christchurch shooting, uh, they blocked. They so they looked at this and said, "Like Kiwi Farms is a problem. How do we get it taken down?" Realized they couldn't, and then, I mean, this is one solution. I'm not advocating, but on an ISP level, they passed a law. My understanding is that like just b- regionally blocks, like you just can't access it if you're using you know local ISPs in New Zealand, and like that's sounds extreme, but. Like absent other options, like I see how they end up in in that place. I mean, it. I don't think it does sound extreme at this point, right? Like there are things that. This is not just true of the internet, right? There are tons of things that it is generally accepted that people need to, that need to be kept out of people's hands for a variety of reasons, right? There's like the example you were talking about earlier with like a true archive, right? the The structure of a true archive is such that. Things are kept away from people both because they are vulnerable to decay over time, but also because to touch them puts you at risk. And, like, honestly, I think that's fine. Like, if we're talking about removing, like, actively malicious work i don't at, at that point i stopped giving a shit about free free speech as a principle. (laughs) Well, Um, that's and that's the thing. I just I don't I fundamentally don't really put much stock in slippery slope arguments at this point because it's always like look there is a point where the where the slope is slippery i am sure but this right here is a flat fucking plateau like this is this is just a there's no like oh man but what if there's like something that's like adjacent to cute but not as bad like how do we it's like we can just identify this this extreme <laughs> case and just be like fuck it like standard rules of discourse do not apply and that doesn't mean that doesn't put other speech rights uh at risk like this is not you know i guess in some ways this is like the speech equivalent of um 
modern firearms in some ways too, where it's it's like the level of widely disseminated and really specifically indexed and targeted material like this is simply not conceivable to principles of free speech that are formed around the idea of people being allowed to like write and publish what they want in like media outlets or creating uh, like, like structures of journalism or works of art. This, this isn't comprehended uh, by that and is such a perverse and extreme expression of something you might call speech that like, it just doesn't pose the sort of like, that's something probably I found so funny about cloud flares. Um, you know, when they, when they posted their blog behind this reasoning, they, they said difficult cases make bad law. And I'm like, this isn't a difficult case. Like, I understand like for libertarian assholes, I'm sure this is very difficult, but for normal people, this is easy. And it mm-hmm. was easy years ago. And the only reason it's not easy for you now is like, I am sure somewhere there's a question of like, at what point are we liable for stuff that's going to happen? Or at least if stuff continues to happen on this trajectory, at what point will there be a backlash against our other lines? Of yeah. It won't, when you start losing enterprise client, because the next step yeah. would be who's using Cloudflare. Do you want to be associated with someone? You know, I mean, that's yeah. that, that was where this was going. That's where this was going to get pointed next. And so, they must have crunched the numbers and just uh, and figured it was it was just worth worth cutting cutting bait and and not having the negative PR continue. But I you know had to enjoy the, you know the last couple of days. Like what new thing will Glenn Greenwald have to defend? And he was out here saying Kiwi Farms should still be online. Just mm, delightful. What a complete piece of shit. Free speech also doesn't. Protects you from the government censoring your speech, or not from fucking companies, right? Like, if you go all the way to like the fact that this is a private company that can kind of do whatever the fuck they want, it's only about PR, right? Which is why this, uh, this like form of kind of directed uh campaign ended up working is because it made them look bad enough. But like, there was actually probably not really that big of a legal like like protection at all. Like that, that that always seems well, kind no, of no, tenuous, but, I, but, right? <laughs> but this type of philosophy is always like also, sure. by the way, like even my middleman company, I don't want making these sorts of judgments about what are we helping perpetuate <laughs> in the world, <laughs> even though, again, like these are judgments that occasionally you might have to add. And this and this was not a hard one. And this right. is the thing that like you just that you get no credit for this, having let it get to this point. <laughs> like I like I would find it very hard to believe at this point that. Cloudflare does not have a fairly intimate connection with the people who run Kiwi Farms just because of how often the shit is coming up. Right. And so, like, for them to have gone to this like they were facing a fucking firing squad, like, I I am so skeptical of this strain of, like, libertarian thought because it's just it's so weird how it always just sort of bounces onto the side of, like, outright fascist terrorists. Uh, it's just weird how it always comes out where it's like, I just don't I don't want to muzzle people just saying what they what they think like this particular person should be hounded to death. Uh, <laughs> like I, like this, these are not hard cases, but but yeah. but this this strain of thought always seeks to blur that line because that's the only way you can defend it. The only way you can defend letting the stuff like propagate online is by tying it to ideas and freedoms that people do care about 
and somehow making people think that like this is an apples to apples thing and we're just talking about like varieties of apple and not that like it's like apples and cyanide capsules <laughs> <laughs> well and this is this is the first instance in which like there's a certain level of you're familiar with the internet and you've at least heard of kiwi farms but it never truly gone mainstream right like the closest it it did was you know, during the Gamergate era. And Kiwi Farms has sort of just been, uh, frankly, an institution. It is just, a f- like, that is just one of the parts of the internet, the ugly parts of the internet, it just exists. And what was different here was that, well, suddenly CNN's writing something. Suddenly, like, the, or you have, like, you know, you know, uh, reporters like Taylor Lorenz were very cued into the internet, like, making sure the Washington Post is writing about it. And, like, once those, once you reach that level and you have you're writing out plainly what Kiwi Farms does. It's like it's a website where they host people's people's personal information in the hopes of harassing their friends and family. And you just tell that to a, a, a normal person that you know uses the internet to access Facebook. Like everyone's like yeah, with thumbs down. Like yeah, I guess that probably shouldn't exist. And it's like once once they hit that threshold where normal people are talking about it, that's where that's the moment where Cloudflare lost because. There's just no explain. Yeah. Like before, they were talking to the, the, the internet, like poison pilled people who like. Uh, but once you're talking to normal people and trying to explain why you're defending, that's why HM was gone. That's why Daily Stormer was gone. Because once you explain it to normal people, you cannot do it with a straight face. You cannot hide behind the thin libertarian ideological arguments, and that's what happened here. And then it just all falls apart once you have to explain to a New York Times reporter. You know why? Why you're okay with a website specifically targeting people in the hopes that they'll kill themselves? Uh, I, you know, that's just not. It's just not going to hold up. Yeah, I um, I wish everyone involved with Kiwi Farms nothing but the absolute worst. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if there's one sort of regret, is like there will never be the sort of justice that actually is deserved for like the existence of that site, which is, uh, you know. People like Joshua Moon actually being made to answer. Yeah, we're not going to get like the January 6th, like they're showing up in court and they're doing the no. tearful apologies. But the one thing I'll say, the thing I do take solace in is that the kind of person that ends up in a place like that, their whole identity is tied up in places like that. Their entire life, they have been forced yeah. to exist in a place like that because they have nothing else. Um, and you take that away from them. And that's devastating on in a, in a different way. And that's not the same as seeing Joshua Moon put behind bars. Yeah. But it ain't nothing. No, I mean, it's it's satisfying to watch them, like, rattle the cage uh, as as this is closed around them. But, uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully it stays locked up and, and Kiwi Farms uh, stays in Internet hell uh, forever. But uh, we'll we'll keep our fingers crossed for that. Um Right, let's, take, <laughs> let, let's take a break, uh, recalibrate, and come back, talk about some games, and uh, hit some emails. Back after this. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And we're back, uh, finally getting to talk about some games here. Uh, so, Ren, you've been playing Splatoon 3. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't you fill me in? So, Splatoon 3 is um, feels like an update uh, to Splatoon 2, which is mostly fine, because Splatoon 2 was pretty exceptional. Um, it has mostly been like a lot of quality of life improvements, uh, and like a pretty large single-player campaign um that is i think pretty solid uh it's a lot more creative than splatoon has been before with its like single player offerings but um yeah, i mean the game feels like really good uh it's- splatoon 2 had a uh a, a pretty terrific campaign um i think splatoon 1's was like pretty light but splatoon, splatoon 2 was the there was secretly a reason to play this game if you didn't think you were going to Maybe not worth full price. Of course, the problem is Nintendo games never go on sale. But uh, <laughs> but secretly, they, these games started having some pretty robust and interesting single player modes, which I'm encouraged to hear about the third one as well. Yeah, uh, there was this like there was the expansion at the uh, end of Splatoon two. They did a uh, the, like octo uh, octoling expansion uh, and added in a bunch of uh, like extra single player content and a couple of like extra weapons. But uh, Splatoon three builds on that because I don't know. Do y'all know the do y'all know the narrative premise of Splatoon 3? Oh, can I can I deliver this on to you? Um can I just pitch the last I remember of it? Yes, and then you can correct me if I'm wrong. Me, is that the running theory is, or maybe this is explicit, it could be go either way, mm-hmm. but that this is a post-apocalypse story after humanity. Yes. And the and the, the squidlings are yes. if not I don't know if like they overtook us, but they are what is beyond. Yes. Uh, the organism that takes over the, the after the afterwards. Yes. There are lore entries. There are there are there is there are lore entries in Splatoon where what people took us talk down? about the climate apocalypse. It's the climate apocalypse, baby. Uh, oh right, because the Splatoon three trailer was like big desert. Big desert. Um, mm-hmm. people were wondering if maybe it was going to have like an open world element to its single player. Now, now here's here. It kind of it's weird. It kind of it's eh. now here's the key though. Yes. The main threat in Splatoon three. Us? Is 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 furry tentacles? <laughs> oh no! Okay, it's, it's clumps of fur, balls of fur, furry okay. goo. That kind how of do you furry. Have, not how do you have furry goo? You may wonder. Oh, they found a way. That uh, oh that let me tell you that three D model does feel furry and gooey at the same time. It is it is troubling to kind of behold. Uh, it's like a step up from lichen. But started to like coat mm. all of the, um, all of the like fish creatures. So you are seeing like kind of gooey, furry fish walking around uh, in the single player campaign, which is one of the more conf- one of the more challenging images I've been confronted with as of late. Um, I did not go into Splatoon expecting to be affronted by eldritch horror, mm. but. But yeah, I mean, it's good. I mean, Splatoon remains the thing that it is, um, which is like a really tremendous multiplayer um, shooter that has a, for a Nintendo game, a 
surprisingly terrific competitive foundation. Uh, as someone who's been watching a lot of esports uh, recently for like watching like Pro Valorant, I think that Splatoon is actually a tremendously well designed esport. Um, both as like a viewer sport, but also like on a like gameplay level. Um, and so I, if I have a hope for Nintendo, it's that they actually encourage those aspects uh, of the game and its community, uh, like post release, because they've done a couple of tournaments, but they haven't like really leaned into it before. What well, what's been? The- oh, go ahead, Rob. Well, not to always do the like, you know. Uh, but the switch is so ancient. My my frame is my performance. But but I am kind of curious. Uh, you know, given how smooth a lot of other shooters can be at this point, like how like how good feeling can be to to play them. I'm curious. Like, does does Splatoon three still feel like it's aimed perfectly at that hardware, or yeah. is it is yeah. not straining too much? Not even a little bit. Um, it is, It is. I think, the Nintendo Switch at its peak. Because Splatoon 2 was stressing the Switch a little bit, I think. Yeah. Uh, I think that they have, in the time since this release, uh, Nintendo has gotten a better grasp of how to pull everything out of that hardware. Which is why Splatoon 3 barely looks better than Splatoon 2. It's all, mm-hmm. like, very minor, like, quality of life, uh, like, visual fidelity increases. Like, the ink is shinier and a little bit more reflective. Um but like it comes together to feel a lot more polished um but no it like runs tremendously uh, i've not had any problems with with how the game runs uh really smooth and also like i think that the the benefit splatoon has in this case is that it is from a competitive perspective from like a gameplay perspective it is designed with the fallibility of the switch in mind um there are very few weapons in that game that are going to be dependent on a perfect flick um that like a like a a frame perfect frick like flick like something you would have in valorant right and i think that is like a very big benefit um for the series like long-term potential and also like its ability to like get people to to try it well one of the things that i think works to splatoon's advantage and as someone that doesn't watch a lot of esports and thus uh finds a lot of it very uh unreadable or inscrutable because i'm not familiar with the like like the specific language that's occurring the verbs that i'm supposed to be watching about what i'm supposed to be impressed by part of what makes splatoon work i think not only is it impressive because it has enough depth that it can capture people who are uh may on the surface wonder like oh it's oh nintendo made you know a shooter like so of course it's you know it's, it's probably pretty simple meant to appeal to kids and it does but also like you can just jump, you can just watch a Splatoon match, and because it's it's a game like depending on the mode, like built around watching, like well, who's got more ink, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and it's more complicated than that, but like it's literal is that like the main verb of like shooting ink, it more ink of one team yes. presenting dominance allows you as a viewer to very quickly grasp what is happening here, who's winning, who's losing, what's the tug and pull of the match. Uh, and I've always found that really arresting about Splatoon as a franchise is how much it's, its literal visual design is is keyed into its gameplay design. Yeah, it's 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 really it's really uh, it's really cool to see. And I think that like the core of a thing that I've been thinking about recently as I've been like getting more into like Valorant and um, even like uh, fighting games, the key to pretty much every competitive video game is who is controlling what space uh, and how space is controlled and usually that that 
isn't visualized to an audience out if you don't have like a perfect understanding of every character's ability. Especially in right? a shooter, right? Where you're watching a singular first person perspective or even bouncing between them. Like part of what it makes a fighting game like really effective is that you have the, mostly the whole field. Exactly. Like you can at least see all the players. You can see a health bar. Um, plus Splatoon, granted it's, it's, it's given, it's helpful that it's third, third person, but, uh, it, it has all these other really smart aids that make mm-hmm. its visual language easy to read. Right. Um, even if you're not like really deep into, to that world. Right. You can see what angles are being covered because there is ink on them. You know who has control <laughs> over what territory because it's like, oh, cool. If they had access to this area, it would not be covered in yellow ink. Uh, and it makes it like, extremely readable and also like a lot easier to learn uh i think that is the other like real benefit of like splatoon is like a piece of game design is that it is way easier to learn what you are doing wrong and how to control space in splatoon than it is in something like valorant because like again everything is literalized in front of you and it just makes it like way more approachable uh i know one of the things that uh this is true in Splatoon, much more true in Splatoon 2 when Nintendo more firmly embraced it. But the fashion element of Splatoon is a big deal, right? Like Nintendo sort of picked up on the fact that people, they like, they want their swag. Like the like central hub area of Splatoon 2 is basically like going to a bunch of different stores and buying a bunch of cool different gear that you can like, you yeah. know, kit yourself out with and then go out there. I'm curious what parts of Splatoon 3 have added to that. Is it sort of the same? So I think that Splatoon has always leaned really, really hard into like hype beast fashion aesthetics, yes. which are not my favorite thing. I like I like streetwear a lot, uh, but the specific kind of streetwear that Splatoon has kind of tied itself to, uh, like the very like brand dominated, um, like fucking big shirt, little shoes. Sorry, big shirt, big shoes, little pants. <laughs> uh, style of streetwear has like been like the core of the series for a really long time and a thing that i am relatively excited about another thing that i want to know here is that i haven't actually gotten to see much of the fashion because the way that nintendo runs their uh things can be a little bit difficult to interact with sometimes uh and so the fashion that was on rotation uh when i was playing in preview uh, and in like the review era um was not extensive they were not cycling it i think at the pace that they cycle oh, so is, is that how the, i forget it's been a while since i played splatoon 2 so it's like basically like the shops are refreshing yes. from a, a larger pool and basically yeah. part of the reason to log in every day is to see what yes <laughs> what is it zur and destiny but instead it's like <laughs> what, are the, what are the splatoon shops yeah. selling today yeah exactly or you can have the or you can use the phone app which is a thing i did when i played splatoon mm. 2 because there's sometimes exclusive things you can get on the phone app my is that that's is not a Splat- is that a splatoon app or the nintendo online it is the app. nintendo online app in which there is a splatoon section <laughs> because okay. the nintendo <laughs> online app is a weird hydra well right because that's uh that's how they want you to do voice chat yeah. right like in theory is through ugh, well they did <laughs> do they still Yes. I don't remember. I believe okay. so. Gross. I believe so. I mean, I don't uh, think that's how most normal people do do it, but yeah. I, I that might have been that's that might my last memory of where that part of Nintendo's online infrastructure uh confusing well, infrastructure left off. And this is probably because it's a different company, but uh Pokemon Unite, which is uh developed by Timmy, has in game voice chat, so it's like mm-hmm. physically hardware possible on the Switch. So okay. It was weird that they decided. Weird? 
I'm not sure if that's the word I use, but <laughs> it was it, Nintendo. It is, that it they is weird, but I don't know that it's weird that Nintendo did. Right, it. Like, right. This yeah. is the friend code company. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, my hope is that because the thing that I really want is like more alt fashion in the game, because again, it's it's very like rooted in this hype aesthetic. And as a as a devoted little alt girl, I do want like my big sweaters. I got I, I have to see more big sweaters. Give me Just in time for fall season, right? Like, yeah. come on, Splatoon. It's not the summer. <laughs> I, I need I need something to approximate the extremely toxic Evangelion sweater I spend most of my days wearing, um, it, so people know that I am heinous. What are the people this time that aren't? Oh, the idols. Them, yeah, what, doesn't one of them have a sweater type deal? Yes, she does. I wish yeah. that uh, her <laughs> clothes were available in game um, because uh, her fit is extremely cute. Let me show y'all uh, these three. But that uh, could also mean, signal that they might be moving towards more of that stuff as well. Like they leaned some in, of that stuff. They leaned into the 15 head aesthetic uh, from <laughs> Splatoon 2. They decided to quadruple down. Um, <laughs> I love this Manta Ray just standing. So good. <laughs> he's, he's, I believe Doofy. his name is Big Boy. No, it's Big Man. It's not Big Boy, it's Big, Big Man. Big Man! <laughs> mm-hmm. It's Shiver, Big Man, and Fry are each of their Great. names. Wonderful. Um, Shiver and Big Man are very Renata core to me. Uh, everybody, everybody needs a big man in their life. Is is kind of my take. <laughs> and if you don't have a big man, maybe you are the big man. Look inside yourself. <laughs> I uh, one of the things that I've always loved about Splatoon is, and I would do that. I would log in and check this out even when I wasn't mm-hmm. interested in playing the game. Is just the community hub and the images and the drawings that people share all i can think of right now this is i don't know how on the scale of horrible you think but like the queen just died and all i can think of <laughs> oh God, is it's gonna be so good tomorrow the shit it's posting be so fucking that, this, good tomorrow. that the splatoon community is going to be doing if you're unfamiliar with this i cannot splatoon is the uh-huh. closest thing that nintendo has to uh extending the meverse and the meverse was a social network they made for the wii u that it was wholly unique, so interesting. I, I I remain so frustrated that they didn't extend it to the to the Switch in any meaningful way because there were a lot of cool ideas and incorporated people doing drawings. And Splatoon essentially takes some of that and 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 is that still here? Yes. Like, oh okay. God. Yes. So they... people are going to be dunking on the Queen, and Nintendo moderators are going to be flying <laughs> wild when this podcast goes live uh, at the same around oh. the same time the Splatoon is available for for the people. Patrick, they have billboards floating in the sky. <laughs> you can no! you can go to a specific part of the hub, and there are just fucking <sighs> floating billboards <sighs> that take up a tremendous amount of space that are just going to have the worst shit you can imagine. I am, yes. I am so excited. The tradition continues. <laughs> There's going to, within three days, I'm going to think, I think within 24 hours, I'm going to see at least five Twitter posts that are someone uploading their art that says like, I'm a little gay weirdo. Uh, and then a picture of big man. Uh, yes. And that is going to immediately dominate uh splatoon 3 and i'm that i'm so excited good it's luck a, it's Nintendo a huge Moderate. part of the extent like the extension like after i had finished like splatoon 2's campaign i don't know if right. i finished it but i got like a decent like that those became my interactions with splatoon much like my interactions with the wii u that i rarely turned on was uh seeing meverse posts and and people finding uh either sharing something they did in splatoon or something darkly humorous that they found uh 
in Splatoon. I mean, Splatoon, some of my favorite stuff in the Miiverse was, you know, people were just, I mean, it was, it was mostly shit posting and, and like, uh, my parents just got divorced. I'm sad. And then like, it's like seeing how long that would stay up before a Nintendo moderator would do something about it. And it was just a delight. And then you get the the real strength, which is the person shit posting about the fact that their parents are divorced and they're sad, and that's <laughs> yes! where and that's where the Miiverse really coalesces into like a concrete form. I, don't know, I think I think Splatoon Whips. I'm I'm I think is like a really cool franchise, and I was I'm really excited to see it get another shot. Uh, can, uh is the single player? Uh, obviously, this is like a more me centric question, but like, is the single player meaningfully different? Is it just sort of like a campaign sort of thing? So. Yes and no. It they have decided to be a lot more varied and experimental with how they understand what a level is uh, and what what the objectives okay. of a level are. Because like in Splatoon two, the objective is pretty consistently just get to the end of it and get the little guy uh, or fight a boss. In Splatoon three, they have decided to make every level a weird game show challenge. And so you can take it on with a handful of different weapons, all of which require you to play slightly differently and take on like odd objectives. One of the things that I've uh, I've seen is like one of them is just asking you to jump over rings until you jump over enough rings to like you did the game show. Good job. Here's <laughs> here are your points. And so they've gotten at the very least a lot more experimental and like expressive with, with, with what they are asking you to do. And like the level design on those has always been excellent. Uh, I think Splatoon's like level design has always been great. And so seeing it used to different and more interesting ends has actually been really nice. And also like the new weapons, like they have made the weapons feel distinct from one another and interact with like level designs in more particular ways, which I again appreciate. Like what? So like every level only has four weapons you can use on it, which they pick out beforehand. Mm -hmm. And so there are ways in which you can pick something up and be like, oh, cool, this group of enemies here I have to approach, or like this like bit of terrain here I have to approach in a totally different way because I am using the umbrella, and I could like, this is totally trivial with any weapons that are not given to me right now, and I have to like specifically learn the thing that I, the quirks of the thing that I am using in this moment, uh, in a way that I think that Splatoon two gave you a lot of freedom as to like what you wanted to use in any given level uh after you like get the weapons and so it's good to see um them pushing a little bit harder uh and like being more intentional about what you can and can't do uh and you, you mentioned it was like mostly iterative or is there like a big new game mode i've not been specifically following like the splatoon directs or or, or anything or is it mostly just new levels uh you know new weapons that is the that is like the major disappointment is that there's nothing on the tier of Salmon Run because Salmon okay. Run was the big addition in Splatoon Two, which is the game's horde mode. Um, Splatoon Three does not add anything on that scale. It just has so many quality of life improvements that it's kind of astounding. Uh, Nintendo has a mostly reasonable lobby system, actually, which is which is uh, hard. Well, congr- is hard con- to say. Congratulations, yeah. you know, just. <laughs> but I mean, that's that's the yeah, to your point of. Splatoon, a a game that probably would be bigger if it was like Nintendo's like approach to online competition was, I don't know, they're just more attentive and interested in it. Like the fact that Splatoon 3 has a better lobby system, has quality of life improvements, like in theory, hopefully that is helping it approach more of a Smash Brothers situation where it can sort of break free of, of just being like a popular Nintendo game, but also right. have like a longer lasting 
uh, impact um, and stuff like that is, you know, critical to sort of getting the, the game in a place where it can even, you know, the community can pick like, hey, actually, like Splatoon 3 is our game, like a, a melee or something like that. Yeah, I I am. I I think that Splatoon kind of was a was a forerunner for the era of the weird shooter that we are now in. Like, I think that like Roller Drome like is not. I think that Roller Drome and the genre that emerges around it uh, and that it, that it is a part of gets a big boost when Splatoon 1 comes out and it does really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I hope that like the continued success of that series makes people just do more interesting things. If you're going to make a shooter, like make it interesting, make it fun. Be, yeah, like, like you still shoot guns. I mean, that's always, you know, in the same way that, you know, Nintendo's approach to the open world, uh, you know, if you, if you break that down into a feature set, it doesn't sound that all that different than what you're doing in an Assassin's Creed game or whatever. But there's something about Nintendo's design sensibilities that it's always exciting when they choose to enter a genre that you mm-hmm. would go, really? Like, I don't, this doesn't seem like this fits your, your set, but what they bring to it is always, or usually something really mm-hmm. interesting. Cause I, you know, I, I mean, I think that was the, the knock on them in like the GameCube era, uh, roughly around there where like, uh, like, you know, violent, realistic shooters were becoming the most popular genre. And it's like, well, <laughs> Nintendo's fucked. Like, look at Wind Waker, you know, what they can't, they can't keep pace with this. And they found, you know, they went through their ups and downs, but when they eventually turned their attention to a genre that would not seem to be compatible with right. what they, even their action games largely don't involve guns, you know, they end up producing something tremendously interesting it's expressive like that is that is the core thing is that understands that like mechanics are tools for expression as opposed to ends in and of themselves uh and like that is why i I generally like it when yeah when nintendo does weird stuff agreed so i guess in the vein of things that are trying to be weird but maybe aren't weird enough uh so i'm playing two point campus which is a it's like kind of a for-profit education uh, version of Two Point Hospital, uh, which is sort of, as Kyle was mentioning, I think as we were sort of uh, wrapping up the session yesterday, I'm not sure this was uh, was on air, but we were sort of talking uh, after the show that like Two Point Hospital is a series that kind of explicitly is trying to sort of be the inheritor of the theme hospital, um, you know, mantle, yeah, I- which was a... I believe there was what, some mid crossover- late nineties satire. Yeah, late late nineties. It was. I think there was some crossover in devs too, right? Like there were some Expo people on that on that team. I I can't remember if it was like if it was like that sort of direct lineage or not. Uh, certainly, it was positioned that way. Yeah, as like if you liked Theme Hospital, this is uh, th- this is it. Uh and I liked I liked Two Point Hospital. It was it was fun. Uh, I think maybe the the most crucial thing is the interface for this series is really really good, uh, very legible, very snappy. Um, the humor is very, uh, gosh, what is the way to put it? Like it is like the satire is. Like the satire could not cut butter, right? Is is kind of how it is. Like it's all we're we're all having a good time. This is very much like at most like uh you know a late night monologue in terms of edginess uh for for how much it's going to push its points. So you know two point hospitals very much about like boy pretty pretty wacky how these people with all these conditions have to pay all pay us all this money. 
uh, and we're we're in a sort of milk them for as much as possible. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and, and like, so Two Point Campus is taking that same approach to, uh, like higher ed. And so you, like, to give you an idea of the, the humor at least you're going to be dealing with. And, and, and there are, po- there are points where it's charming, but like, this is kind of as pointed as it gets, uh, in, in places. Like, there's a little, as in a lot of your more lighthearted management games, there's a voiceover slash like radio, uh, like broadcast in the background. And at, you know, you hear ads for your university and it says you know, education, uh, education provides you with a bright future and then clouds it with debt. Hold for laughter. <laughs> it's it's no less, care. it's less, it's uh, less, uh, it, the healthcare one, I feel like that falls flatter than the education one. I'm not trying to minimize student debt, but there's something about like people <laughs> actively dying in order to, you know, like that seems so much more crushing than the, than the, than the financial one. But I, I, who knows how far, I don't know how, how far they take that once you, you get that initial pitch. So well, I, I think, oh yeah, please. Connor. I just wanted really quickly to confirm that the uh, producer, lead artist and composer of theme hospital are the ones that kind of went on to make uh two point studio to make the two point uh what was it two point two point hospital two point yeah. hospital and two yeah. point campus yeah right you had something yeah i was going to i was gonna like ask if do you think as someone who played uh both do you feel like the the uh, like patrick was like the darkness of making jokes about healthcare. uh makes it a lot more like makes it land flatter does it make it land flatter or does it actually help things out with the contrast no i so i think i I think it lands about the same way on honestly uh for me and just in terms of how the the comedy is hitting like it's uh yeah we all been there buddy uh it's it's fine uh and and i guess you know crucially if the comedy is probably already right up to the line where if it were more pointed and obtrusive in the game you would just be starting to get increasingly annoyed by it. Uh, and instead it kind of has to occupy this, this space is almost like the punchlines are landing, like music beats where you'll have, you'll have tunes playing in the background. Then you'll hear a little joke, a little like fake jingle for your, for your college. And then the game goes on. You have to be able to tune that out. But then occasionally the stuff that will sort of catch you is uh, various like DJs appear on the radio and like, they will go on little riffs and very occasionally you'll sort of start to realize like, Oh, this is actually kind of a good weird little riff uh this this dude is on i think the bigger the bigger thing that i'm that that is in play for me is the nature of the management game you're playing so two point hospital uh was very much a game fundamentally about pathing uh two point hospital is about managing to make it fast uh efficient profitable and successful from the moment a patient walks in the intake uh, to sort of have them just barreling like a, like a rifle shot uh, through the various specialists and wards that they need to go through to get there uh, to get, to get treated, which by the way, already means the two point hospital satire can't help but be comparatively uh, utopian. That's the other funny part of this <laughs> is like, well, you better pay up. Do I would happily pay for the kind of healthcare you get? And, okay, well you get you're you're coming with comedy diseases like lightheadedness, and they got big light bulbs for heads. But like 
the the utopian part of it is like two point hospital is you go to the hospital and they just like shuttle you through special shit up yeah like all the tests are done immediately the diagnosis has got to be like fast and accurate and then you got to get your treatment because that's what you're paying the money for and like you know this is (laughs) maybe this is where the the metaphor breaks down because the two-point hospital version of america is like five different tiny like medical strip mall campuses separated by like three miles of gridlock and parking lots. Uh, and then each one has a different fucked up relationship with your insurance. Like you can't, it's kind of like beyond satire. Uh, so two point hospitals, like you're building, building this beautifully like vertically integrated hospital network. And you know, it's like, boy, it's a pretty messy that this is all for profit. Huh? And I'm like, Oh man, I wish I lived in this world. <laughs> These, these these people don't have the, well, this wait. person paid me ten thousand dollars, but you know what? They got all that medical care. What they don't show during the game is the amount of people that get uh, apparently thrown down shoots uh, because their credit defaulted. Right, right. <laughs> which is the opening of Theme Hospital. Yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah. the even more pointed. Yeah. Uh, you know, gag there. But talking about the the pathing thing, so that's Two Point Hospital, right? Two Point Campus, because the different sort of thing you are building having feels much less important it's much more a game about like almost adjacencies or efficiencies that exist in like uh the ready access characters have to facilities uh Mm. that they need which is its own different challenge uh but it is not quite as demanding or satisfying like building a ship in a bottle uh category as like designing a really good hospital out in two point hospital this is much more like yeah so you know i put the teacher's lounge here and there's a bunch of classrooms around it and then uh you know they gotta have some bathrooms so they're not like having to path too far to the bathroom and like missing classes but like that's not like there's a much bigger error bar around that Mm. than there is around like somebody comes in intake and that patient will be dead in like five minutes unless they start getting the right diagnosis from like the jump. Is, but that's uh, what I, oh, sorry, Kato. I was just going to ask, is there, um, is there limitations? Like, so in theme hospital, the part of the thing was that once you hit a certain amount of profitability, you like move to the next level and it would be mm-hmm. a harder layout, right? Like there would be more like different buildings that you have to build out. Um, and so the pathing would become more complicated because people are then moving yes. not just within a single building, but moving out to other buildings and such. Is that a thing in yeah. this one or how's the structure? So it's kind of, it's kind of clever how they do this. Uh, with each can you unlock different campuses and you can just sort of stay on your campus and it will continue throwing like more advanced challenges at you, mm. uh, with that layout and on, on that campus, or you can just move on to the next one, which will like give you a different scenario and then that one will 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 sort of tear up. And so it's kind of interesting. Uh, I, I kind of really like the structure, honestly, of the game kind of encourages you to leave a bunch of half finished scenarios mm-hmm. and move on to the next thing where it's going to tutorialize some other uh, set of features uh, and, and buildings. But then like later you can come back and be like, well, now with some of the stuff I've unlocked and some of the stuff I've come to understand from these other like schools i took over now this next like leg of the journey of this like starting campus is going to be like really easy or interesting Mm uh so so that's kind of how they they handle that progression so the question that i'm kind of hitting is 
does the game mechanically actually feel like it's about a school? Because like the things that you're describing with pathing and, and adjacency don't those are the things that cause inefficiencies in something like a like a like a hospital, right? And I think that the, the thing that I'm coming up against as you're describing this is like that's not what causes problems in schools, like efficiency wise. And so does the game feel like it's at all thinking about that fact or like what actually causes inefficiency in educational institutions? So there's a couple of things. One is I think this game has a very heavy UK perspective in terms of Mm. how these things work. And so like a bit like with hospital, that feels even more pointed here. It's just not as in tune with how like America, like what American campus life is like, uh, Mm. as opposed to like, uh, UK in in mm. in some ways, but I I think so the the way this plays out in terms of again you kind of can't help but end up in the process of satirizing ending mm-hmm. up with something that's accidentally kind of utopian. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you're really measured on is how well students are learning. Uh, like are students actually being properly educated in the thing that your university is in the courses your university is offering and the way you make sure that that happens is so like one how good are the teachers in the classroom how many uh individual learning facilities are in the big laboratory or uh workshop area that's associated with a with a different specialty course um but then how easy is it for the students to go to the library and like hit the books in the library Mm -hmm. and so that's kind of where the the inefficiencies crop up is like if the library is understaffed or it's too far away students will not use it uh and so they will underperform so it's Mm -hmm. kind of like basically making it so that all the necessary educational resources Mm -hmm. are like easy for students to like utilize in education mode but then, and I think maybe this is where it starts to dial in a little more on like uh, some of the weird incentives around American campus life. Uh, students also want to have fairly posh living conditions on campus. And so you're kind of encouraged to run really lavish and inefficient like money sinks in terms of dorms and like student <laughs> unions and and things like that. Uh, in part because like that that makes the student body happier, uh, but it does mean that like housing begins to consume a bigger and bigger part of your budget uh, because like there's a certain point where you just cannot cra- cram enough creature comforts into a dorm room unless you like size it up, right. uh, and so that's kind of that that's kind of the tension that that you're sort of wrestling with here is that the marketability of your university sort of depends on the, the ability to like throw a lot of shiny objects in Mm -hmm. front of prospective students Mm -hmm. uh, and keep the student body happy. But then the outcomes for university depends on having a lot of like seamlessly integrated resources for the students to have access to and use. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's, that's kind of the tension. Uh, it's not it, it's not a terrible rendering. You know, again, the thing that the, the missing element in a lot of these things is, uh, you know, you, you, the, the thing that this game isn't going to have is a massive uh, like. 
you're not required to hire more and more administrators who just like mm-hmm. consume colossal sections of budget, right? Which is kind of the re- the real issue is like, why is, you know, why, why is university, why are university finances uh, so fucked up? Well, it's because like universities grow admin staff, but they do not invest in teaching staff uh, and they do not invest in like educational facilities. Right. They, they kind of turn into a racket for like assistant deans and, and admins. You don't have that in this game. There is no, there is no like bureaucratic leeching uh that happens in 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 the uh on the campus so that's that's kind of what's missing uh but but mostly what you're doing is trying to like strike this balance between uh having efficient ready access to resources and then also making it so that your campus is the most like play hard uh you know for whatever students are into environment it can be are you making decisions about what fields are getting prioritized at all or is it just each campus has its priority already and you are not making that decision and not having to balance the difficulties between like for example funding a like tremendous liberal arts department versus like a mediocre engineering department so this is i'm I'm starting at the point where the game is turning into that a little bit more which is um usually at the start a college has like a thing it's focusing on you're learning about the things that that go with that type of education uh, but then as you're trying to expand out and uh, like grow the student body, you're, you're highly incentivized to start offering more courses uh, there. Weirdly enough, it's kind of, well, I guess you can choose to ha- make it have more rhyme or reason. But the thing is, like, what you're not going to have is a lot of um, complementary courses that you can offer where it makes sense. Like, oh, yeah, this is a, a, a humanities, uh, you know, school. And so we're getting a lot of humanities departments uh, stood up in here. Like, this is all very like the model of university education here is wacky vocational school. So mm-hmm. it is, uh, oh, like our our VR classroom that teaches the kids how to use VR and like build things in VR. Uh, we need to like stand that program up and invest in a VR lab and all that stuff. But then if we want to order another. If we want to offer another course next year, uh, you know, we have a choice between, you know, uh, cooking, uh, like a, a culinary school, or it can be like building robots. Um, and you don't you experience a bit of the tension in terms of almost inevitably the newer department will just not have the expertise that the senior department does. Uh, and so like in its early stages, it will be a bit of like a weak point for you. Um, and so you do, you do wrestle with a bit of the tension between like uh, maximizing excellence in one area and wanting to have the most diverse uh, student, like, like honestly, I mean, the the incentive it seems to give you for bringing these folks in is it's profitable to have a lot of mediocre departments. You know, it's it's you can make a lot of money by offering more classes. And so that's kind <laughs> of the tension you're you're navigating is like after a certain point, you could increase the capacity and the worth of like a department by investing more in it. But might be faster and easier just to say we're going to stand up a new department uh and and grow the student body that way so like it's 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 cute it's fun as i said like um it's 
the thing they do really well in the series is it's just kind of nice to play with the big snappy tools and lay out the little, you know, uh, the, the facilities you're building and, and creating like comfortable little spaces for people to work with, uh, and, you know, different things for the little creatures to engage with. Uh, that's, you know, that's, that's all good. It's, it's a, it's a very fun, chill management game. Like with two point hospital though, it's like, I'm, I'm right there on the border of like, it might just be so chill that I'm like, not feeling much friction that's interesting for me to overcome. Uh, mm. You know, if I get into trouble, I just sort of accelerate time and watch the money roll in and then I can buy whatever is the equipment that I need to sort of get out of trouble. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I'm, I, I I assume and I hope it gets uh, it's harder as you go along. But, you know, several scenarios into this, it still it still feels like it's it's so focused on being a, a, a chill and frictionless good time that it's not necessarily setting like any sort of uh, interesting puzzles uh, before mm-hmm. you. I guess the final question I have is like, you talked about the the satire falling a little bit flat. And, and this might not be what this game is about, right? You can tell me if that's the case. Does it feel like these games believe anything about the way institutions are run? Beyond like very simple satire. Hmm. That's a good. Question. Like I think I think they do believe things, but I would not say they're they're extremely thoughtful about it. Is is though like you don't get a sense of there being an argument to be made. It's a bit like, honestly, it's a bit like talking to fairly non-political friends who fundamentally have like decent beliefs and de- a decent like intuitive sense for like how the world should be mm-hmm. but really not given a ton of thought to like how it could be like that or what are the forces mm-hmm. stopping it from being like that and so like the the level of analysis uh that you get here is very much informed by like wow like universities are too expensive and boy maybe they wouldn't be so expensive they weren't spending all this money on marketing themselves uh to to students and sort of presenting themselves as a young adult playground uh, rather than a place of higher learning. That's that's kind of as far as the argument goes, uh, you know, that I can tell. There's there's little bits that like, you know, I don't know, maybe this is becoming more of an internationalized thing, but there's bits where you have incentive. One thing you have incentive to do is like jam your campus full of snack machines uh, because like. One, it brings in revenue for you directly uh, is students running over to the the vending machine and uh, using that. But also like occasionally uh, the two point, (laughs) the two point uh, fake brand for like Cheetos and cheesy gubbins. They will send like campus reps to be like, are you providing enough cheesy gubbins to your student body? And they will give you a bonus if you do like a significant bonus in the early part of the game. And like, you know, if you're familiar with public high schools and how those like vending machine contracts play out and what is made like readily accessible to students, like, you know, that's not, I don't know how big a deal that is in college, but that is for sure a dynamic I recognize from high school where it was like Pepsi and Frito-Lay were were keenly interested in, in how students and what students were eating uh, on campus. Got it. Uh, yeah, so I mean, look, I, like I think it's, I'm having a nice time with it, and I, I wasn't sure I would. That's the that's the main thing. And I think uh, 
my initial reaction was very much like, oh, this is a little too humor's a little too grown worthy. It's a little too anodyne. Uh, no, nah, I, I stick with it. I think it, it, it's it's rewarding enough uh, as you see more systems come together and the demands being made on you to sort of prestige up your your building. So that's kind of that's kind of the, the progression you're doing is uh things cap out and you just need to get more goodies into the facility in order to prestige it higher and attract like a higher level of, of rating for your student for your for your university and higher uh you know like more tuition so that that that's kind of uh where it starts to get more interesting uh is is as you begin just running the physical limits of how much you know crap you can you can jam into the university uh it is tied to a bit of a not exploitative, but it's it has an in-game unlock uh, mm-hmm. system where as you complete missions, you get their their special like super currency uh, that is basically controlling the pace at which you unlock these kinds of special upgrades that you need. Uh, so that's the kind of thing is you bring in tuition money that pays for 95 percent of what you need. But to unlock uh, like special items uh, like decorative items, you need uh they're they're special like space box so that's that's the that's the one thing sort of that's the that's the hook that's drawing you along and you know it's, it's effective uh like i said it's i think it's it's better than it initially appears and uh you know it's not been has not been a bad time uh i have been very curious about because i boy I, I you know i guess this is a heavy topic for today but i do love monarchies in a time of revolution <laughs> i love i love Being me one? mad love emperors me. Mm-hmm. i love me decaying royal lines uh father did you see uh, that'll make sense in a week no what, what did i see already out did you see the um the tweet that steam official twitter deleted no no wait no are please, we please, please feed me hit me here i linked it why isn't it embedding? Whatever. Uh, they had <laughs> tweeted just before the news broke, Steam, free weekend. Play Crusader Kings 3 free this weekend and save 20% when you buy the game. Why would you delete that? <laughs> Fucking incredible. Who's so nervous? That you can't encourage people to play Crusader Kings on the, the weekend they, they, the they queen kill, They died. kill monarchs in that game. You heard about that? <laughs> I would say marketing departments, but Valve structure doesn't. That, that's that's where, you know, yeah, a traditional company, Rob, would go like, just, just you know what, take the schedule tweet out today. But Valve, I don't know. That sounds uh, like that's like a Jake Rodkin is the kind of person who would uh, <laughs> delete that because of the structure there is so weird. Uh, there's there, there's going to be some all time like cringe branded posts uh, for sure around this. Oh, Domino's is, Domino's is already weighed in. I can't get uh, over this clutch Domino's? Uh, thing. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've seen that, it's like I think this is this is basically a shit post uh, that is meant to draw this kind of attention. Uh, so you know, I kind of oh, wait. Maybe it's not because they appear to have deleted it. <laughs> shit! I should have screen capped <laughs> no! it. I should have screen capped it. Fuck. Oh. Clutch points had Queen Elizabeth ascending the gates of heaven with like. A bunch of athletes in like a uh, who the fuck is a shitty right wing artist like John McNaughton or whatever. 
uh, <laughs> like a bunch of artists done in that style, right. like grieving her as she ascends the stairway to heaven. And it's oh. like Lewis Hamilton and like <laughs> to attack Valoa, uh, like just their heads bowed solemnly as the queen waves goodbye. Oh, we got it's- the radio one. We got the radio one. Yes. Oh, hell Y'all yeah. remember? What, what was the other one? Uh, I forget what the original one of these was, where they had to stop oh, the fucking... Oh, it was... It was um, are you talking about the... Uh, they had to stop the broadcast of, like, this fucking EDM, and then, like... Oh, it, right, right, They announced right. the death of someone important, and then it hits... When it comes back in, it cuts right to the drop of the song. Incredible. <laughs> Incredible. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, Patrick, obviously... Uh, it's it's difficult to talk about a game like Steel Rising uh, <laughs> it, it, at a time like this in history, and yet I must know uh, how you've been getting on with the French Revolutionary Automata. Yes. Uh, yeah, I've played about three or four hours of Steel Rising, the new game from Spiders, uh, the developers most recently of Greedfall, a, and that was sort of a... Uh, what like colonialist uh, Mass Effect RPG Hell sort of, of first act. thing? Great, yeah. And then, well, I, don't you, you and Austin, I don't know if you guys have the best grip on this. You and Austin played it, and so, Spiders. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Rob. They give more experience with this, the studio than I do, but um, like just sort of perennially in a, a studio that's like just a couple steps away. Like ah, like an interesting choice, an interesting game. But it's just not quite all the way there. And then you're curious about what they'll do next. I don't know if the pivot I was thinking was Greedfall and then a Souls-like. But that's my impression of Spiders from a distance is a studio that everyone's like, huh, like, that's all right. I mean, it's pretty flawed, but in interesting ways. I was was just going to use this analogy, which is that. Like Spiders games, they don't hide that necessarily deepest, darkest parts of the well behind the bar. But like it's it's there on the bar back, and you'll be like, "Hey, you got a Spiders game back? You know what? <laughs> I, you know what? I could really go for that. Can you give me some of that Greedfall gin? I could, I could. You know, I I know it's kind of funky, but I'm, I'm in, in the, the mood, mood though. I could yeah. go for a, I could go for a Kentucky gentleman. That's kind, that's kind of where they are at. I I I would say like a noticeable like step behind where their aspirations are pointed, mm-hmm. but like far above like sort of the the joke tier uh that some games wander into right or like you know what uh you know some games are called like you know like euro jank or or, or something uh like that like they, they always seem like they're above that they're like exist yeah. in a different tier almost like their games uh are frequently like that like double a single a like to use a lack of a better term but like games that existed more in like the ps2 like the ps2 era was like a real hallmark of this of like you know, like a game like a psyops, uh, or it's like this is an interesting shooter. Yeah, it's not as polished or as 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 big budgeted as some of the the other stuff out there, but like, oh, it's like it's trying, it's trying something different. And so I've always gotten the impression from Spiders that that's kind of the studio they are. Uh, I I come here to report. I think Steel Rising carries on the tradition of, huh, interesting. Um, more so than finally the studio put it all together. But yeah, Steel Rising is. I didn't know uh I didn't know the premise of this game. Um and I've been confusing it with a more anime focused one that comes out later this month whose name that I can't. I swear to God, I pain? told you, you about, about the premise of, of this game on this podcast no. like three weeks ago. Wait, what are you No, it's not Lives of P. There's a different 
maybe it's more of an action game. I don't know, but I've been confusing these games. Um, and, and Steel Rising opens, uh, with the reveal that, yes, during the French Revolution, uh, you know, things are burning, things are going poorly. Well, uh, one could say there's been not enough revolution is the impression <laughs> I get that sure. uh, the, the King Louis does what the real life version uh, didn't have the the will and crucially <laughs> or an army of robots. technology to do. Uh, and so, yes, like part of what is oppressing uh, at the moment is apparently a, a an army of killer robots. And but fortunately, Marie Antoinette has a bodyguard, which is you, which is you. You're the good robot, um, or at least the ambivalent robot that can follow uh, Marie Antoinette's orders to to go out and fi- figure how do we how do we stop this thing? How do we get these robots out of here? And so then you just, they, you just go out a window and then time to start time to start fighting some fucking robots. Marie Antoinette, um, classic revolution liker. I it's it's bizarre. I'm sure it'd be even more bizarre for. Anyone else on this podcast who has a better sense of 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 history than than I do, but it's 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 odd. It is it has like a very weird, striking uh, setup that is just like uh, I don't know how we got here. It does feel like a bit of like if Lies of P is like someone spinning, you know, the, the Pinocchio one. Like it's some it's people just like making these souls like and just spinning <laughs> a wheel. And I don't know how we ended up on French Revolution with robots but nonetheless we end up on french revolution with robots and it's a game that controls extremely awkwardly to start (laughs) um uh it's weird because i just came off 110 ish hours of elden ring i finished that this week right and so i i am i am coming off playing (laughs) so you've fallen off the top shelf well yeah i mean yes yes like i i am playing uh, I like make more mixed thoughts about Elden Ring, like holistically, but it is from soft from in all sorts of ways operating at the top of their game. And then the next day I'm like, well, time to load up this review key for Steel Rising and see how this goes. And here's what I'll say about it. Yes, it, it controls a little awkwardly. It does not feel as fluid. That is the case for like broadly most of the games that attempt to ape uh, what uh, from software is doing. Uh, in terms of combat, the one from a couple of weeks ago, uh, Thymesia, uh, is, is a game that I've, that one is specifically using Bloodborne as a jumping off point and then trying to do its own spin on it. I think the combat there is interesting. I think one of the points I made there was, but the level design and the art direction, like, aren't very good. And it, there, it is a misreading of From Software's games to not understand that those things all work in concert with one another. The combat is key. The game, the games don't work without the combat but and, and so steel rising is a game so they what's different about the combat here so the different difference in steel rising is you uh there is a much bigger emphasis on elemental uh sort of manipulation there's a much bigger emphasis on items it is the elden ring like elden ring you know really encapsulates this but it's true of of all the souls games in which they one of the things they share in common with survival horror games is you get to the end and all those cool buffs and things you could have thrown at enemies you just didn't use. Because, well, couldn't use it here. Like, this may not be the run. Um, and that's uh, how you end up at Resident Evil with, you know, 60, you know, gr- you know gr- pieces of, like, <laughs> of grenade ammunition that you could have used uh, to get yourself out of some tight quarters. Well, part of what uh, Steel Rising emphasizes pretty quickly is that in order to not just mitigate the difficulty, but to really take advantage of what's different here is you are going to want to manipulate 
uh, elemental weaknesses. And a lot of that involves throwing like fire grenades or uh, I have a gun that produces frost damage. And th- you'll see those literally filling up. So unlike uh, the Souls games where like uh, like bleed buildup or frost buildup that will can lead to like a, a, a really powerful attack if you get enough hits in, all those meters are hidden. You just have to hit hard enough and then eventually it will it'll happen. Here, uh, it's all forwarded. Like I can when I shoot an enemy uh, with an ice bullet, I see that I see that thing fill up and then I know I have to knock it like two or three more times and then it will get into a, a frozen state. Um, and that is really I, I think they're forwarding that because as opposed to elemental attacks in a Souls game being optional, like just a thing you can play with. Here, it's pretty core. I mean, you can do just like unbelievable crippling damage to like the first boss that I faced. I just, I had saved all my bullets and then just kept firing them at the boss. And they would just, I would just lock them into a stunned position, uh, over and over again. And this, you know, big boss, powerful music and a big red bar at the top of the screen. He can't move. And then I just whack them over and over again. Um, you have grenades that will like stun them so that you can do, uh, the game has, the equivalent of kind of like a, a visceral attack or like a really powerful critical hit where you can do that on sneaking up on an enemy or you can do it uh, by stunning them. Uh, and st- stunning can happen where you get enough attacks in that you fill a meter and they get stunned or you could just <laughs> throw lava grenade at them uh, and you, you can stun them. And so what I and those these elemental things also apply to you. Um, and so there are enemies that will shoot flames and like you will light on fire and then you need to dash in order to uh to essentially like you don't actually stop drop and roll but it's the game's equivalent of that if you're Uh, on fire run as fast as you can and fan the flames out yes Mm -hmm. yes um there's another neat mechanic where uh in a lot of these games you are your attacks are limited on stamina and you can of course upgrade that so you can attack more often um and then when that's exhausted you can't run or you can't attack or your attacks are limited to be like a light attack so that happens here you'll exhaust your stamina but then what happened, you can either wait for that to fill back up or the alternative is you can, there's a white, like the green meter goes down and then a white meter appears and that white meter starts going down. And if you hit the Y button on a controller and you can get that stamina bar back, but you'll have, in, you'll have it, uh, imbued yourself with frost damage. And so let's say you're facing an enemy that can hit you with frost damage. You, you're, yes, you can, you can lock yourself in as you can get another attack and really quick. But you may right. also open yourself up. Because the idea is your stamina closer. is overheating, right? Yes, That's the thing correct. where it's like it has That's to. Sick. You, you need time to vent if you're going to air cool, or you can do that <laughs> liquid nitrogen cooling. Exactly, uh, exactly. And, and you'll and really see, hot rod that rig. Yes, and you'll see. You'll actually see that reflected in the animations of, of yeah. the character, and like the. I, I think the. I actually think the aesthetic of the different like robotic enemies and your your character are like pretty sick. Like where it falls down is like the environmental stuff is just really. I kind of felt like, you know, you know, that spin of the wheel. I'm like, I feel like the reason they they get there is like robots and then like late 18th century French revolutionary fashion. What an incredible combo. And I'm like, it is a pretty incredible it's, it's combo. A really it's good like combo. That, that, that robot Nakake just like killed a guy. Okay, yeah. <laughs> here we go. Yeah, and they're the uh, I'm like still pretty early on, so I haven't gotten a ton of equipment, but the equipment is extremely fashionable um, and you can definitely see yourself like, look, I just want my sick ass robot to have this sick ass fit instead of, I don't know, plus five 
frost defense or whatever. Um, and so because it's a setting that is just not, I don't know. I haven't played a game that's been in a setting like this since Assassin's Creed did it, right? Which was Assassin's Creed Unity? 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 Yeah. U- Unity? Is that what you called it? Unity. Unity. <laughs> um, so that like that part works. Like the, the outfits are, are pretty cool. But um, yeah, I, I think similar to Thymesia, I started out with a really poor impression of Steel Rising where I think that was coming off a high of Elden Ring and then playing something that feels derivative, not having a good sense of its identity. And then just aesthetically, it is just such a step backwards, not just on a budget level, but just in a artistic directional level. It's a like the, the, the souls games from software really understands environmental design and, and using that as part of not just storytelling, but also how they lay out combat scenarios. And I feel like that's frequently lost in a lot of these uh, games that take uh, influence for them. Uh, but as I got further on, uh, I'm not going to make any, like, story is, like, completely absent. Like, I'm just, I, nothing is occurred. Wait, hold on. So this is my question. Because, like, yeah. where I played the the the, the demo uh, that was released, like, a month or so ago, and I got through the same part. Like, I got through the, the gardens of Versailles. Uh, yeah. And then you get to the city. Yep. And I was kind of curious, like, is it going to go in more of a greedfall direction where it's, like, uh, you know, talk to Monsieur Robespierre. He is the only one who can help us. And like, you're playing factions, or is it more like nothing? Gonna yet. be straight uh, the dark, like uh, a Souls yeah. game, where it's like, oh, uh, here's a new quest. Go kill your way to the end of this level. Yeah, that seems to be uh what it is so far. Which, given the the studio's previous RPG leanings, is a little disappointing because yeah. I think I think what could have been really interesting was some sort of mashup between the two of those, right? Where like the game does have uh, a compass. Um, so you do have main missions and submissions and it will vaguely mark where you're supposed to go for those. And so it is a game that is a little more explicit about main paths and side paths and investigating things that are, that are optional uh, relative to uh, how from software traditionally handles that, which is, I don't know, go look up a guide. You chuckle fuck. You're not going to figure this out playing the game. Um, and uh, it, but I, I wish it had leaned harder in that direction. Or at least I'm, I'm hoping that if I play a couple more hours, there's a little bit more of that because as it stands, it is like a big opening cut scene. And then I don't know. Do you want to read some scraps of paper on the ground? And then like the NPCs are similar to Bloodborne, which is like people locked up in their houses and like, I need some water. OK, I found some water on the ground. Here's a fragmentation grenade. Thank you. Um, so that that part of it is a, is a little disappointing. Uh, I have a question. Yes. Does this game have... Uh, okay, the Perry Liker is about to log on. Does this mm-hmm. game have anything that feels even remotely as good as a Souls game Perry? Like as a, as, a, as a FromSoft Perry, whether it be Bloodborne or a good Perry in one of the Dark Souls games. Like is there... Do you have that like high risk, high reward combat option that feels snappy? Uh, no, I, I mean, like the, the, this is sort of this is kind of the rub with any of these uh, or most of these like the soul spinoffs is that you it's going to be how interested are you in the variation that it's that it's doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, can you tolerate what's interesting and, and different about it while also realizing it is not it doesn't it's never going to have the same crunchy 
satisfying feel uh, that that FromSoft has in in their game. So here, parry is a bit like Elden Ring, in which it's optional. Um, so there are some enemies that uh, some uh, weapons that have a parry, some weapons that have a different special attack. So parry is a special as opposed right. to built into the like core combat mechanics. And I do have a parry. I have found the parry window to be wide enough that it is useful. And I'm I'm swapping between. Unlike Bloodborne, you you do can't you can't have a gun and a weapon out. You are like t- you're tabbing on the D pad to right. swap between those, and there's like I don't know half a second, so there's a little bit of a lag bet- between the two. Um, so the parry is usable and useful, but it does not feel. I mean, there's like su- there's some, there's a way that FromSoft does it, which is like when you hit a parry, there's like clunk. You know, I mean, there's like a there there yes. is a there there is a visual confirmation, an auditory uh, a confirmation, like. Everything about the games, like the game is is coalescing to let you know you did something interesting. Right. Um, you see the enemy stagger back, like knee down, and here, like they get thrown back and they fall on the ground. But also the 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 throw is like far enough so that you can't really like pummel them after the fact. It's like they're kind of out of your attack range, or at least kind of the short range claws that I'm, that I'm using. So right. no, like it's an option. It is definitely a play style that is that is uh, uh, if not encouraged, then definitely usable but uh it it lacks that kind of specificity that you get out of uh a souls combat and Mm -hmm. and but in the looseness i have found like it's interesting to play a game in which i'm loading up my inventory and i'm using flame grenades and i'm using frost grenades and i am going back to the bonfire equivalent and stocking up on that um and uh i have enjoyed that whether it's enough to get me past hour eight, which is like usually what happens with these games is I'm interested. It doesn't help that I just finished Elden Ring. So I put in a ton <laughs> of hours into one of these. Um, and that would be true whether, whether it was made by from software or not. It's just, it's an extremely similar game with some different approaches on gameplay. But uh, so frequently, and this is true. I know you've championed the surge and I, I believe you, but so frequently my, what happens to me with these games is, well, boy, from software makes these games fast enough that if I just take a little break, there'll be another one to play. And I'd rather take it from the studio that is, you know, the proven commodity. Uh, mm-hmm. And so these games are always like, I'm just going to get a little taste. Like, ah, you know, I still do like I like how this plays. I like I like these types of games. And so the question for me is, can Steel Rising get past the eight to ten hour mark where it's like, yeah, I'm good. Like, I don't. I don't need any more of this. I'll, I'll wait till from software announces whatever's whatever's next. And I can't answer that quite, quite yet. Yeah. Um, but one thing I do, like if the game opens up and starts like surprise, it's a choice driven RPG. I, I am dying to know. Because, I will let you know. Like, I will, I'm going to play far. My little killer robot, my little French revolutionary Robocop, <laughs> like then I'm all in. Yes, uh, yes. So that's, that's kind of like, because yeah, I, I was kind of in the same place where it's like combat's fine, uh, and it's got kind of yeah. a cool look and vibe in this game. But like, I don't know that's going to carry me through a long game. But the minute it's like, but will I turn my wrist blades loose for Danton? That's now we're talking. Well, yeah, because that's 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 one direction that I've not seen anyone really take this style of combat is plunk it into a full on RPG. Now, Grant, the Souls games have plenty of RPG elements, but like the side quests are opaque. There are no function like real dialogue choices like it has a very specific house style and 
I would love, I would love if this combat, like I played Greedfall, like the combat was, you know what I mean? Like it was fine, but this combat is, is a lot better. And if you just dropped this into a world that had, give me big dialogue trees, like just, just go all out. Uh, that I think that could be potentially interesting as opposed to what so frequently these games slot into, which is slightly tweaked combat in a, in, in, in a novel setting. And it's just unclear to me if Steel Rising gets gets past that. It probably also doesn't help that maybe maybe Spiders is making multiple games at once, but it seems like a weird pivot. Like it's like what what I don't see a whole lot of what they learned from Greedfall, like explicitly transferring to the game they built here. So uh, maybe there are multiple teams and they're building another like full on RPG. I don't know the whole uh, scale of the studio, but uh, uh, it's it's interesting. So I'm looking at their upcoming. They have announced Greedfall 2, the dying oh, okay. world, right. uh, for 2024. Okay. Well, then, okay. So this is like a, a second team. So that makes that makes more sense. Um, I, I feel like they remember they had a slasher team somewhere in there. Because uh, was something by something of fire or? Yes, they have Bound by Flame. So by basically flame. looking at their yeah. one. This is a fascinating uh, list of releases. Release number one, 2009, Sherlock Holmes versus Jack the Ripper. Wait, what? Wait, what? (laughs) Wait, that's not a Frog Wars game? Nope. What? Sherlock Holmes versus Jack the Ripper was made by Spiders. Cool. Published by Focus Home Interactive in 2009. That one was all right. That was good. I remember that being good. As was the (laughs) Testament of Sherlock Holmes. They made that one, too. 2012. Okay, this is just this is a this is a regular this Sherlock is, this Holmes is game. Fucking me up. Yeah. Okay. No, I'm seeing like this is on my Steam library. It's credited to Frogware, so I wonder if they did like a co-development or like a publishing deal. Yeah, Frogware's working with spiders is the ultimate. Oh, the that's game like, is that's awesome. my multiverse of madness. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, spiders were the 360 devs. Aha. Uh-huh. Hmm. Spiders made the 360 game. Um. Then they made uh, Mars Warlogs, a game that yeah. I remember playing in 2013. I, I definitely remember some people trying to be like, you, you should give Mars Warlogs a, a, a shot. And I was like, not with that name, but <laughs> I, I'm glad you're having fun. Then Bound by Flame in 2014. One of the worst E3 presentations I've ever attended. Then the Technomancer in 2016. And then finally, Greedfall in 2019. What a fascinating studio. Wait. I'm sad that Sherlock Holmes versus Jack the Ripper isn't some sort of either beat-em-up or fighting game. I agree. <laughs> Wait, Rob, what is... You know, what is the Bound by Flame E3 presentation? Uh, it was a briefing in which they introduced us to the concept of a loot box. <laughs> which I guess at the time was more novel, but it was like... It was seriously... And our oh. game has the things RPG gamers love. Loot and treasure chests. We combine them. You're welcome. <laughs> and like, and I swear to God, that is, that is basically what I remember being it. And I remember like me and a bunch of other journalists looking at each other being like, are we seriously, do we seriously book a half hour appointment for this guy to show us like their randomized <laughs> treasure chest loot oh. distribution table? Uh, it was grim. It was like it, it seemed fine if a if a bit dull, but the fact that they were like really front loading uh, this aspect was 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 pretty dire. But also kind of endearing because like they were very stoked about the way they were like doing loot and what you'd be getting out of these treasure chests. 
And like it was sort of a purity of enthusiasm that I could not ever imagine having for like a basic thing like that. But uh, there it was. Uh, it was just very it was a very long presentation uh, for that for that point. Um, let's see. I am going to have to run here in like 10 minutes uh, to go yell at some folks. Um, <laughs> do we want to wrap up the show or should yeah. I just bow up? No, let's we, we we went long yesterday. What do you want to pull like one or two questions and then we'll, we'll yeah. Out? Um, here's I say we went long yesterday. I that we we're recording this podcast in two parts. I yeah. should point out. Yeah, <laughs> we are we are uh, past the two hour mark, so like we're yeah, fine to wrap whenever. <laughs> uh, hey, DW from Seattle uh, writes with a what I think is a great question. Uh, so we all know that Rob has lots of hobbies and interests, but do any of the other members of the Waypoint have any? It certainly seems like the other folks just aren't as interested in all the nuance and beauty life has to offer as <laughs> Rob is. Thanks, DW from Seattle. God. It's a great question. <laughs> uh, I, I like Certainly, I can't. I'm biased, uh, but I do think DW is on to something. Patrick I didn't ruin our question bucket. <laughs> it was simply my joie de vivre. Patrick, you play more Steel Rising, you'll learn what joie de vivre is. <laughs> I'm not sure I will. I feel like you just read a question that was designed to dunk on us. Like, what? No, no. If you, took, if you took if you took offense to that, you took Rob's bait. Bounced right off. <laughs> All right, fine. Well, here's a real question. I mean, I have an answer. I like to do photography and climbing. Moving up. <laughs> Kato, hmm. do you have a joie de vivre? Do you have interest in the finer things? Yeah, I mean. I went and saw a cool show at the Guggenheim over the weekend. That's probably my thing. See things that I'm in New York. You, you win by default. You just live in New York. Yeah, this, that's the You're thing. Like, you just, I just go like, places. Well, I, I, I'm getting worked here. <laughs> yeah. the art, I could the go, art to, I could go to the New England on. Quilt Museum. It's also, I do, I do like, I do like making nice coffee in my Aeropress. We, I share this with Rob. Yeah. I like a, yeah. a good Aeropress. <laughs> I just need to put like some sort of cowbell on the Aeropress, uh, like cap because it's always vanishing uh and that's the that's the that's the one frustrating yeah, thing it, all right yeah uh chris <laughs> writes hi waypoint crew uh rob's invitation for actual gaming questions inspired me to finally email in i recently completed a full playthrough of the homeworld deserts of karak campaign and absolutely loved it rob is right it is great rts what really struck me is how quickly and deeply its art and music grabbed me so much so that after the campaign I went online to see if there's an art book I could add to my collection. Good news! There is! Called The Art of Homeworld. It was released in 2015. The only problem is the price. As I send this, the cheapest on Amazon is $1,614.73. And, well, frankly, that $0.73 is just too much for me. (laughs) My question for the crew is what game media, art book, record, collectible, statue, etc., would you love to own but can't justify the price? Uh, if you don't own, don't have one, what prices do you just not understand? Uh, cheers, Chris from Down Under, where it's finally warming up after a cold winter. Hmm. I think art for me, like I will say, art books are a good poll because there's a lot of things that I regret not grabbing. Um, for years, my local Best Buy, uh, like in Cambridge, had increasingly beat up collector's editions of Bioshock 2, <laughs> which I had not played at the time. And then I played it later. And I was like, the game ruled. But then, too, they were collector's editions. They had, like, the, a big, beautiful art book to go with mm. them. 
Uh, and in retrospect, wish I'd snagged that. Like, but I think art books in general are things that I very rarely regret picking up. Like, if you go see a cool mm-hmm. museum exhibit, I think those like limited run like exhibit art books are probably one of the better things you can get from the gift shop uh, because they go out of print. Yeah. And it turns out that like getting that stuff together again would be much harder for you. Uh, yeah. So they start yeah, expensive, like though. Uh, like they start expensive, though. They like, do. One of, like, but it does not easily a hundred bucks. No, it gets worse. It gets much worse. <laughs> um, Rob, you mentioning Bioshock 2 reminded me that I never played Bioshock 2, but I did heavily follow the Bioshock 2 ARG. Mm. And I'm curious what some of the pieces from that ARG go for these days, because there was a vinyl that I have. $140, sick. Wait, no, that's not it. That's the wrong vinyl. They sent out, like, <laughs> vinyls that were part of the puzzle. I'm like... <laughs> uh, I don't think anyone's selling theirs. That's interesting. I, 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 have, for- a ha- I have a handful of art books, but the problem is then they just live underneath something. And never, or like you try and arrange it next to a toilet or something. Like maybe sometime I'll look at this and then just, <laughs> it doesn't. Like, you know, I'd, you know, I've gotten a hand, like, I, one of the ones I, re- I do really like is like when I get into like a mythology of something, like they're not art books necessarily, but like almost encyclopedias. There's a thing called like Lostopedia, which is just like index of like all the mythology of that show. And like, I enjoy like parsing through that occasionally, like reminding myself of the bits of the show that I don't remember anymore. But, and I, I've always, oh, I always admired. Actually, speaking of souls, like the souls art books always look mm-hmm. tremendous. I just, I'm never gonna look at it. Um, and I don't, I don't have like part of it's kids, but also just I don't have a great way to display it. So just like sits on a shelf that no one's gonna look at. So that's that's how it kind of exits my trajectory is as something interesting. That said, it's also hard to. You mentioned uh, robbing all the fine things for cheap, like it, finding that stuff like in bargain bins, like just doesn't it really exist anymore? Like everything is so becomes a collector's item. It's important to someone. And so especially because of my aversion to like overspending for like boutique items, you can't find stuff like that, like at a GameStop in a bargain bin. It's like, oh, shit, like this thing's marked down to seven dollars. Yeah, OK, I'll get that. It's like, no, that thing is going to be seven hundred dollars five years later on ebay and i'm i'm never gonna touch it mine has to be fashion like if if a game has mm. good like fashion i will i will pick it up like i can i am my disco elysium jacket is hanging on the wall behind me um and like that is that is my that is my thing if, if a game releases like really good fashion which is extremely rare i i will pick it up if i if i really love it my god i can't think of actually Try to think of anything that could that could get me right now. Like a good Funko Pop? Oh. Natalie's not here. We can't. What if I just started sending you <laughs> Funko Pops? Well, mm. I can't want send them to Natalie because she'll proudly display them. Yeah, she just enjoy that's, them. <laughs> that's beyond the point. I need I need these to be objects of shame. <laughs> you need to curse people with Funko Pops. I yes. I'd weep. A negative. Guilty Gear Strive. <laughs> Funko Pop. Does that exist? I did actually. Uh, I did actually recently buy a Guilty Gear Strive plushie uh, on mm-hmm. st- on stream because I was told about this Guilty Gear Strive pr- plushie while I was doing my doing my sets, and I was like, "Oh, cool! I am going to order this before I am before I am screwed over." 
And so now I have a little Ray plushie on the way, which I'm extremely excited about. All right. Uh, I think we will leave it there. There's one more I'm keen to get to. It's a really good story, but uh, I don't think I have time to read it. So we'll, we'll have to tune back on it. Uh, tune back in on that email very, very soon. Uh, remember, you can send us all your questions at uh, gaming at vice.com with the subject line questions. Uh, that's a wrap on today's episode of Waypoint Radio. If you want more from Waypoint, you can follow us on Twitter at Waypoint, Facebook and YouTube, Waypoint Vice. You can follow me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Uh, Ricardo, where can people follow you? At a underscore Cotto underscore appears. Patrick. At Patrick Lovick. Ren. At Ren or Raven. You can also check out what we published on waypoint.vice.com. Uh, I think this week, Ren has been continuing on the multiverses beat, and uh, Kato wants everyone to, to make sure that they, they see the very good deck uh, Ren put on her story about uh, Velma and one of the quirks <laughs> of, her, of her kit uh, in, in multiverses. Uh, so check that out on waypoint.vice.com. Uh, Pickles. As far as streams... Oh, I'll actually have an update for for our stream schedule uh, for for off the air. Uh, But uh, thanks to Waypoint Plus, uh, we streamed a whole bunch uh, last week. I think Patrick has done has completed uh, his his triumph. The world is in flames. Welcome to the new age. We'd love we'd love to see a frenzy of flames (laughs) and a glorious rebirth. Uh, And. Next Monday, of course, uh, Motorsports Monday will return uh, as I think we'll, we'll probably pick up Oberhof Racing and and see how that new car uh, come, comes together. For Waypoint Plus listeners, uh, they will get to hear us discuss, I think, this Prometheus, right, Kano? Yeah, that should be. That's today. When we're that's recording today. This. Yes, I'm finishing that as soon as we get off this call. <laughs> Man, those lucky people with those Waypoint Plus subscriptions who just get to hear Ooh. the Prometheus conversation. Uh, it will hit the public feed after a week. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's worth going to waypointplus.com uh, to get access to those episodes early, to get access to our premium feed, uh, and to get access to an ad-free version of the mainline podcast. And that helps support uh, Waypoint and everything else we do here. And also, if you want to go uh, a bit beyond that and, and pick up some fine merch, you can go to waypointgeneralstore.com and uh, buy shirts, glassware, etc. Our theme music is by Bowen. The track is Miss You off the EP Pale Machine. Learn more at waypoint.zone slash B-O-E-N. For now, we're calling time on this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Until then, fuck capitalism. Go home. are on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns Recording started. Going to time that is uh, an essential website that we all need. Uh, yeah. And we should all say thank you to. Everyone say thank you, time that is.
Praise be. Thank you. Thank you, Time Dot is. Thank you for making this podcast possible and for making shout out to the job easier. Shout shout out to the quote of the day. Time, the devourer of all things. Where are you seeing this quote? Ovid? Scroll down. Who's who's Ovid? Oh. Uh, Roman poet. Mm. But it's also the world's most trusted medical research platform. So, I mean, who can say what it's attributed to? Mm, Very true. Ovid is? Mm -hmm. Feels like unfortunate branding. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) I I, got to believe they are not thrilled (laughs) with how the last couple of years have played out. A classic Woo. name that will stand the test of time. The world's uh-huh. most trusted medical. When people think of Ovid, they'll be thinking health. Oh, Lord. I'm ready whenever. All right. Uh, shall we clap on 40? Yes, we should. can't believe it. I think Kato's going to kill the clap, though. It's fine. We can keep doing the clap. feel like it's days are numbered, though. <laughs> if it's vestigial and Kato's not even using those 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 markers, uh, you know, then... it's part of my it's part of my energy process. It's part of my yeah. ramp up. I, that is true. Yeah, I think it's part of the we, we summon the pod mm-hmm. 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 stand in the clap circle. <laughs> No, right. hey, hey, whoa, 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 Can we rewind about six seconds? <laughs> nope. R- nope, we're, we're letting that sit there. Spent a lot Everybody in the clap circle. I think, I think people sitting in the clap circle is the problem, Rob. 